Hello, and thanks for listening. If you're listening to this, this is a special episode. This is Chloe and Eliana, and we are going to tell you about a Patreon episode that our patrons have unlocked just for you. Yeah, this is Patreon episode 38, and this one's quite a blast from the past for us in a couple of different ways. Are you ready for the Robisode? <laughs> yeah, this is an older episode. This is from 2021. So for the historians listening to the old GGC, uh, it is the day we're recording this is actually December 20th, 2023. You're going to be listening to this a little later. It's going to be published, I believe, uh, in January. It's an oldie, but a goodie. And we're rehashing a lot of these themes that we talked about with Rob, but through Arya's eyes right now on the main A Song of Ice and Fire podcast. Yeah, we are. It's actually really interesting to see some of those things echoed, some of those things change. And a lot of what's changed it might be some of our cultural references, literally, and the events that we <laughs> talk about in our lives. Because this was in 2021, and I'm sure you all know, life was a little different back then yeah uh eliana if i recall you didn't know some of the names of succession characters right? by heart because succession <laughs> also wasn't over succession was oh my god it was 2021 it was the height it was also probably during the time before i came to your place is my assumption when when we watched one of the succession mm -hmm. season premieres together so yeah i'm like giving these people random ass names and <laughs> i mean very interesting. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that's part of it. We also, I mean, I think I think this was an episode we really enjoyed. We did it alongside another Stark-esque, you know, Catelyn. And we really, I think, analyzed a lot of Rob's storyline from all the different connections and perspectives that he could have had. A lot of people, not just us, go through their life every day thinking, I wish we had a Rob Stark POV, and I literally think that's why we chose that. I think George uh, for the episode. wishes that. Yeah, George, George. Has literally expressed, I wish we had a Rob Stark POV. <laughs> Definitely uh, having no Rickon, which I think a Rickon chapter would be mm. amazing. Others may think it's immature, but I think it could be very superior. Uh, just like yelling at Shaggy Dog all the time. Get over here, Shaggy! But Rob and Rickon are two very interesting characters, right, that are taken off the map for us. We don't get those emotions. We don't get behind the scenes. And there's so much to glean from his life, whether it's the pressures put on him by his, you know, dead dad uh, or Catelyn. I think you should still hold out hope for a Rickon POV if you really want to in that... <laughs> You know, George has changed his mind about how he, how he's presented the books in terms of splitting the books up, scrapping the five-year gap. He hasn't changed necessarily the endpoints, as you said, right? The broad strokes. But you could still get that Rick and POV. Hey, anything could happen. It's anyone's Game of Thrones, as we like to say here at GGC. We really hope that you enjoy this episode that's blast from the past, as Eliana said. And, you know, there are 60-something goddamn episodes for patrons in the Stranger Tier and above over at the Girls Gone Canon Patreon. That's patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We really appreciate any support on Patreon. Uh, not necessary, but thank you for, you know, listening to our content all the time. It's been a couple of really great, a, a lot more than a couple. It's been many great years with Eliana and with all of you, and we look forward to getting through the published A Song of Ice and Fire books POV by POV with you all. Happy New Year. <laughs> I guess we should have said that last, last bumper or whatever. Eh. <laughs> eh.
The crown is crushing him. He wants so much to be a good king, to be brave and honorable and clever, but the weight is too much for a boy to bear. Rob was doing all he could, yet still the blows kept falling, one after the other, relentless. Hello, everyone. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon's, gosh, what, our 38th Patreon special bonus episode on Rob Stark's point of view, The Young Wolf, throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. You know us. It's me, Chloe. And it's me, Eliana. Clink, clink. Clink, clink. I am thrilled to be here about this chapter where we're going to dissect Rob Stark's role in Westeros, an American musical, a very popular fandom music. I'm so sorry. I just had to bring it up first. Let's get it out of the way. There's a great musical. If you like Hamilton, you got to watch it. It's Westeros, an American musical on YouTube, and it is silly. Listen to it. Have fun. Rob Stark's a great character in that. Spoiler, he dies, and he dies in this iteration too, right, Eliana? (laughs) You know, he, in fact, does. He does. It's a big deal. You know, uh, it was such a big deal that this is really what uh, David and Dan wrote towards when they first conceived of the idea of Game of Thrones. And then later on, when George was like, oh, yes, of course, I'd love to write the literary adaptation of this show for you. So. I think... Rob Stark not having a POV, and we're going to talk as we get to the end of the episode, we will talk about what what our vision for Rob Stark's POV would be in totality. But today we want to talk about the story from his point of view, right? Uh, just so many parts of the story. We see most of his story through Catelyn and Bran's eyes, I would say. Rob is someone that like ends up really being like projected on, right? Like, as you said, we see <laughs> yeah. his like him more directly through Bran and Cat and even John for a short moment, but ultimately he kind of becomes a sort of symbol for a lot of people. And at the same time, I think he's like such a big part like of the story, right? Like, I mean, so much turns upon his character and his actions. And ever since we started, like, and knew we were going to do the Catelyn chapters, we were like, yeah, let's do an episode talking about what a Rob POV would be like. Yeah, and... From the start, George did not include his point of view kind of purposefully, but he does regret it, right? Uh, He regrets not having a Rob point of view in retrospect, and there is an interview that comments on that. There's actually a couple of them, and part of his regrets in doing so, they, they range for a couple of reasons, right? I think, first of all, as we know, part of his incentive in doing a lot of this from Catelyn's perspective is that he wanted to interrogate the idea of what would like it be like to do a story from King Arthur's mother, right? But in later years, when asked about like some of his regrets of the story um, or what he would like to change, for example, in this interview he did in Guadalajara, he says, is there anything I would actually change about what is in the books themselves? I don't know. I think in retrospect, maybe I should have made Rob a viewpoint character in the early books. A lot of people kind of figured out that poor Rob is going to die just because he didn't have any chapters, and I don't like to be predictable. And that would have made the books longer, too. <laughs> That's one I've played with from time to time. And I think that this is like interesting also because, based on the way that the books are, 
even though George has never said it's a rule, people have kind of assumed, they've assumed that there are not supposed to be any perspectives or POV chapters from any of the kings, right? Like, obviously, we have some from the queens, but we never get any from the kings. But I think that was more of just a how the chips fell, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a coincidence. That's an exception to the rule. Yeah. And then I think also really tellingly and something that we'll dig into here, right? And that George starts touching on in an Esquire interview, an interview for the for Esquire magazine in Russian. George, so this is interestingly, you know, I guess translated into Russian and translated back. So who knows how close to it is to verbatim of their, <laughs> of their discussion, because I'm very sure George does not speak Russian. He has self-admitted that uh, he's very bad with languages, but... Mood. He was asked, like, if there's someone that he regrets not showing as a POV, and he says, sometimes yes, although I think that I have more than enough narratives. Maybe true. Uh, maybe even a little more than I need at this stage, and I need to kill a few characters. <laughs> but I still regret, most of all, that I did not let Rob Stark be the main character in the early books. His death had already made a huge impression, but it could have had an even greater impact if throughout the whole history we saw little more events with his eyes. Especially if they knew what happened to him in the Westerlands, where he led his army and where he was wounded in battle. He went out with Jane Westerling, uh, to whom he eventually married, and this, in turn, triggered a chain of events that led to the Red Wedding. Of course, I'm here talking about the book. In the series, everything goes a little differently. In the books, we learn about Rob, along with Kat, <laughs> in the chapters told from her perspective. Rob came back and presented his new wife to his mother. We do not know what happened there, so for us, it's like a bolt from the blue, and this is a very good scene, but if I gave Rob his own point of view, then the text could have been even better. Yeah. I have no idea how he said this actually in English, though. Again, it's like a translation. <laughs> that's only in the Russian Eliana knows right he, there. Well, that's what, what Google Translate, I think, told people slash other people helped to mm -hmm. translate. So thank you to those people. But yeah. Yes. But I think the context is clear. And yeah. I will say, obviously, we are going to really come at this, I think. We'll talk about Catalan a few times, but this is going to be from Rob. Uh, and I think it's really interesting to think about how to Catalan and her POVs that we're currently covering, Rob is everything. <laughs> Rob is the magnet of her world right now, right? What like what the gravitational pull that kind of keeps her moving towards at least something. Uh, and as his demise comes about and hers in turn ish, it, it's obvious that when that magnet falls away from her earth, everything falls apart. And then, you know, the whole death thing. Uh, and I think just how Rob relates to the larger overall story is really important here. And seeing it through his eyes, especially, is kind of interesting to separate Catalan from that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is, because I think I, it just would have been interesting to see some of the perspective from Rob, because like he, he's obviously a big part politically. Like When we talk about the War of the Five Kings, like clearly he is one of the five kings. And mm -hmm. No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely, did you say absolutely not? Absolutely not one of them, no. <laughs> Uh, not according to certain parties, if you will. For example, the Lannister regime, the other Baratheon regime, or the other Baratheon regime. All of them. Or the Boltons. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the Greyjoys acknowledge them, I guess, as a as a king. They're just like we just gotta kill them. We gotta fuck. Yeah, them up. you're a king until I can take that away from you, and I'm yeah. the king. <laughs> I love that. Gotta respect that, though. You do. And throughout that whole War of the Five Kings. You can see that Rob really brings home some of Catalan's house's themes. Family, duty, honor. Honor, especially versus love, right? 
And that ties in, I think, really well with, I mean, we see John deal with it a lot. We see it a lot in Ned's storyline. So it's something that's a, a great through line through the, some of the young men and, and the boys, through some of the men and the boys in the Stark family. How do you deal with all of that? And I think especially, and this is something that's a through line throughout the entire series, how Rob deals with being a young leader who's thrust into a difficult position and also like what it means to lead and protect your people, right? Like, I mean, it would have made, I think, really great contrast, not only with John, but also with Daenerys' POVs. Because they both, they yeah, both kind of become royalty. Big. They both become like monarchs at around the same time in the story. Their ascendancy is so close, and throughout this examination of Kat's POVs and now through Rob's, you can really see how they're these legendary figures, right, of the young people being thrust into that leadership role. And, of course, separating John's leadership ascendancy is actually a really great contrast, right, to see where, as we'll talk about later, some of the things that John doesn't get leniency on that Daenerys and Rob do. Yeah, and I think it would have been interesting in the earlier story and then in the later parts, maybe contrasting Rob suddenly being like, I gotta go reclaim my home. And that's kind of, mm-hmm. I think, the driving plot, Danny. right? Danny. story. I gotta go yes. reclaim my home. So. It's time. It yeah. is time. And sadly, I think they're definitely... Uh, I, I know I've talked a lot about the Catalan and Danny parallels going on, but I think Rob and Danny have so many parallels, maybe even for their endgame in the end, like just things that befall them and things they don't have control over. And you see a lot of the spiraling, right? Like in A Storm of Swords, Rob is spiraling. He yeah. Things are happening out of his control after Cat 5. Everything is just out of his control. He's trying the best he can, but... All the the things that have happened have consequences, unfortunately. And I think we see that in some of those other young leaders, like another boy, Jon Snow, like you said, who gets a little stabby-stabbed. And I would have also just loved to see how Rob wrestles with isolation. It's something that I think that loneliness and isolation comes through in, I think, almost all of the POVs. Maybe except for Victorian. I don't think Victorian knows how to feel lonely. And... Yeah, the uh, the floppy ears Daenerys is forced to wear kind of feels yeah. similar to Rob's crown in some ways. It Great feels point. floppy to him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what about Rob's fate during the 1993 letter? It was a little different than this, right? I mean, the end had the same kind of same kind of vibe, but what about the start? Yeah, I mean, as as you said, the end is the same. They're dead. He's actually quite <laughs> divorced from Catelyn's storyline. Catelyn ends up going with her other children, right? So Rob, maybe he would have had his own. Who knows how he would have gotten this perspective. But interestingly, Bran is the one who would have initially tried to stop Rob from going to war based on his visions, but Rob would choose to go anyway. And then, as you pointed out, the end's kind of the same. But how Rob dies is a little different. He was sort of meant to die more valiantly in battle, which is, you know, pretty important as we see uh, in terms of the songs and people talk about it a lot and seems kind of antithetical to some of how George R. R. Martin wanted to play his story as it came together. Originally, Rob was going to die valiantly in battle, having maimed Joffrey. So there was supposed to actually be some foreshadowing in the way that they clashed in the Game of Thrones that was all thrown out the window. But ultimately, he would fall to... Jamie and Tyrion's forces 
I also don't know if Tyrion was a dwarf in this original letter, but maybe because he submitted the first 13 chapters, he probably would have been mm. shown to be a little person, so. I feel like, yeah, I feel like he was too, because I feel like if I remember reading somewhere that, as we know, it was much more focused on on his like behaviors, that he could tumble and be like a circus dwarf, basically. Oh, true. And I wonder if that was part of the toning down. Maybe George came on a little awkwardly awful. <laughs> I think he just learned that this was not physically appropriate. <laughs> well, yeah, physically or right. possible. He was like, yeah, like turns it's... out they can't like do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he was meant to die valiantly, like you said, in battle. And I'm on my mythology kick lately. I've just been in a in a zone. I've been mything it up. I've been playing a lot of Hades on PlayStation 4. I've been rereading Madeline Miller stories, rereading some Crystal Wolf stories. Just rereading. I'm rereading the Iliad at a very slow pace right now. And the original letter is so Greek drama. I love it. But it's like drama, drama, drama. It's like Joffrey and Rob have a big fight. It's great. And the more we read through kind of this tragic end, I see a lot of Achilles and his mother Thetis in some of Rob and Kat's interactions, right? Like Achilles, some of the biggest things about him as a young prodigy are his honor is very important for him to keep, right? Uh, the, the biggest problem in the prophecy, Achilles is kind of prophesized to face Hector and peace the fuck out and die in this world. Spoiler. And uh, everyone knows Thetis, he dies, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Do you? I don't I, know about I, those Greeks. I thought everyone knew that Achilles. Anyways. So, like, there's honor is really important to his reign, right? Like, the horse, just kidding. Honor is so important to his reign, uh, of Achilles's reign and Rob's, that, like, anything Rob does shouldn't befall him, right? He's doing in the name of freedom and independence for the North and the Riverlands under tyrannical rule. And as we're going to explore today, uh, some of his men don't also follow that. They're really only there for ambitions under that independence. They're not actually there with the same shared vision and the same shared future. And there's even this part, this great part of the myth for Achilles, where Briseis is a a woman that's being enslaved from the many stupid battles being fought before Troy, and King Agamemnon is basically kind of pissed at Achilles because he starts to hold out. He's like, "You all are assholes, and you don't deserve my beautiful man's strength." And he comes out and he's like, "Give me Briseis," and Patroclus is like, "Achilles." Briseis is like the best woman to us. She does everything for us. We like saved her. And if you give this woman who was about is about to be like subdued to slavery the best of her life, like a piece of cattle, if you give her to this king, you've truly crossed the line. And, and in a way, that reminds me of some of Kat's conflict with Rob, right? With the girls of like, if you give up your sisters, then I know I've truly lost you. However, the opposite is like Thetis and... Achilles, the mother-son relationship there is she is kind of cold. She comes to Patroclus and says, Patroclus, you can't keep fucking my son and be seen at his side all the time, man, because he's going to do great things and you're going to bring him to his end. I've seen it. I've heard it from the motherfucking heavens, the gods, all this shit. And Thetis is like, you got to go. And Patroclus is like, fuck you. I love him. Uh, but then when Achilles is like, kind of starts to waver and isn't being as true and honorable, Patroclus is like, what the fuck? And that that's what happens with Briseis. She gets given to Agamemnon, and it's, it's a bummer for all. 
And it's a bummer for all. It's a bummer for all. But like it's such Greek drama of like these are the heightened things in war, and if you do mm-hmm. this, you've crossed a line. And that's how Rickard Karstark slaying felt too, right? Like you've crossed this line. Uh, and, and we talk about how George has said if Arthur's mom had a POV, it would be Cat. And, and I think that's such a great, clever like way to look at things. It is a great look in, and she and Bran do a lot of that weight when it comes to Rob. And I think in the end. I'm really glad George went more subtle on this and that, I don't know, I think Joffrey, like, especially is the problem that Joffrey is such a little wimp. He Uh is the worst, right? Like, we all love to hate Joffrey because he's just such a brat. And if Joffrey had the bones to get out there in war and face Rob on a field, that would be crazy to see. It would be crazy to see. But I don't think it fits in this story. I think the way that George has broken Joffrey down and shown why he's such an ill king and why there must be a better way to do things in society than Joffrey, uh, I think that's also a way more important lesson. And I think Rob's death also was sadder uh, this way. It was better. It, it made me cry more. Personally, it ruined my life. He will be hearing from my lawyers, the Learn Hands podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think I like the way that George ended up taking everything here. And I kind of feel like maybe the original plan was for Joffrey to be maybe more of the Jamie Lannister character, right? Because I think his maiming was supposed mm-hmm. to also be his hand, same as same as mm-hmm. how it was with Jamie, but and Jamie was going to be like how he seemed at the beginning, right? Like someone who actually w- wanted the throne. But I think that the way that George switched characters around this makes sense and i mean like the twist of the red wedding it is it is very painful and it's it's more true to i think the way that he has been building his story again like not having rob die valiantly in battle because the whole point right is that what's the fucking point of the songs you know and how a lot of it is a farce so the way that Rob's story, I think, went is very important, and especially some of the conflicts and how he ends up leading to his death. Because here, because because it ends up with the Red Wedding, and we'll go through all the things that get us there to an extent uh, throughout this episode. But he gets to the Red Wedding through a series of several, several mm, <laughs> poorly made decisions, whereas dying poorly in, ba- in battle, right, has to do with, uh, I mean, how well you fight, maybe decisions within the moment luck this was all the dominoes fall in such a way with the way that rob dies (laughs) but before rob dies let's talk about rob being born we live we die again rob's born he's conceived in a very crazy time right in river run nonetheless he was born you know they get married in river run the the duo wedding he's probably conceived right there born there as well the Tully Red bloomed within him. His father was gone the next night, right off to war. Yeah, I mean, like, it was really lucky for Catelyn. You know, it, Rob was, like, just a one-hit wonder versus how they were all like, yeah, uh, Lokima, we've had sex, like, a hundred times, but I haven't gotten my wife pregnant yet. Very, very Very fortunate. opposite. Yeah. yeah. One-hit wonder, more like a hit-and-run. I know, I right? right? I mean, it was, because uh, it was Robert's Rebellion. And yeah. he was born... I guess he's named for that king. And you guys know that we're high as fuck on wedding themes right now anyways, so <laughs> say yes to the dress, cat. you know? Oh Maybe not the brother, but yes to the dress, for sure. Uh, 
Interesting, Cat and Rob didn't marry who they were supposed to. <laughs> different true. reasons. Much different reasons, but I can imagine a teenage fight there, right? Of like, you know what, Mom? You didn't marry who you were supposed to either, so they are like, Rob, he died. <laughs> There's something there almost of like what happens with Liza's story that I feel hangs over Rob's own story that I think would have been really interesting to contrast side by side if we had gotten more of that, but it's it doesn't exist. Right, that Liza with her young love or her yeah. dreams of young love and having to terminate her pregnancy slash losing her pregnancies. And also struggling to have a child later on too to produce. Yeah, baby. her and Jane do have some really strong parallels there. Yeah. Well, Rob's not a baby that long, so let's move on to his upbringing and childhood. <laughs> you know, the Stark children were raised well, right? Like, the Starks may scream upper middle class, but they're still higher class, you guys. They're, they're really high class. Westeros, they're not upper middle class. class. They are, like, literally upper class. Yeah. You know, like, they, they don't just, like, Ruling live class. poorly. They live in the beautiful, huge, marvelous state in Winterfell, and their children were raised as well, right? Like, they had septas, they had septins, they had maesters, they had everything. They had men in the forge making them wooden swords or making them actual swords if they snuck them, a la Jon Snow, uh, as we'll talk about. And they had it all. They had all the upbringing you could ask for, for the most part, besides socializing, but that's okay. They could socialize with each other, the yeah. Von Traps. They had greenhouses, you know? I mean, that's a luxury. Yeah. That's off a, the grid living, baby. They springs. Oh, I wonder mm -hmm. if, like, maybe in an alternate universe where there wasn't a war, would, like, they all, like, scamper and be like, we're going to the hot springs. Like, but that would have been cute. That would have been so cute. Someone should write that. It maybe it exists. Stop sorry. breaking my heart. It probably I'm exists. Sorry. It Stop. probably exists. It, I'm sorry. They're all Anyways. so far apart and dead. I mean, yeah, as, as you said, you know, they, they were given the best. They were given, like a very thorough education, and they were doted on. They were loved. They were loved not just by their family, but they were loved by their bannermen. And a lot of that goodwill was bought through Ned. A lot of the three influences that I would name personally while we're talking about Rob's upbringing and men who probably would have been very active in his life, we don't get all of these interactions between them, right? Uh, uh, some of them get interactions later on as we read the story, but for example, Micken. We don't get interactions with Rob and Micken often, but we do see John frequented his forge enough to be able to ask him to forge Arya a sword, as I said. And it's likely, I mean, I can imagine that John and Rob would both, uh, as boys interested in swordmanship that would often fight each other, right? And call out ludicrous, I'm Ryan Redwine, I'm the young dragon, blah, blah, blah. we're fighting with our lightsabers. And that's what we all did, right? Uh, I don't know, I just imagine them running there. All the time to Micken in the forge, telling him, I want a sword like this. I'm going to have a sword like Lamentation. Oh, I'm going to have a sword like Blackfire. Okay, John. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I, I did sometimes kind of sword fight with sticks like Arya, but I didn't do the lightsabers. I was more like a, I'm doing my, my transformation, like Sailor Moon. Those were, yeah, that was, absolutely. that was what I did on the playground. Uh, my, my dad and I would um, fight with our spoons every morning aw. during cereal. Yes, my stepfather and I would play lightsabers with our spoons and I would cut off one of his arms and then he could <laughs> have to use the other arm. So like I if mean, the lightsaber the hit, it's over. You know what I mean? That's, yeah, it was those realistic. 
Yeah, you'd have to, what you do, this is really important. This is actually, I feel like the Starks would be into this. You would have to drink your bowl of cereal down. Like you'd have to eat the cereal as fast as possible and then drink the milk down. And and then when you're done drinking the milk, that's when you pull your lightsaber out and the other person has to hurry their shit up and then you fight them. And and yeah, I did that very often as as a youth, as a youth. I don't understand the youths of today, but I was a youth once and that's what I did. I'll tell you what I did when I was not as much of a youth. I don't know if I played this so much as my friends because I was not good in Mario Kart. I'm I'm including this because this is a Patreon special and so the patrons should know. This is what y'all want, right? <laughs> I think so, maybe. Similar to that idea of you got to finish the cereal before you can use the spoon. So uh, I don't know if you ever played Beerio Kart and there's mm. a beer. There's, there's a can of beer and you're playing and you're racing in Mario Kart, but you're not allowed to finish the whole race until your entire beer is finished. But you cannot drink... You have to either put the controller down or you have to drink it. Some people, they'll space it out or they'll like put the controller down, drink it all right before the end because the point is you cannot drink and drive. So anyways, that's Birio Kart, kind of like what you were saying. But I love that. We actually play that at home, but in a yeah. different way. We just call it drinking and driving. And you You're just not drink while you play. You're not supposed we... to drink and drive. <laughs> but we do. That's the fun of it. We drink no. and drive. No one can stop us in Mario Kart. I thought the, the fun of it was the chugging. But anyways. <laughs> anyways, so, so Micken. Micken. <laughs> I do think there's something really independent in Micken that we see that can kind of show us the Stark children all striving for independence, not just as a whole for the North, but also for themselves. Hmm. And uh, you even see him. He Micken stands strongly against the Ironborn, right, when they begin to take over Winterfell. Even when Bran says, Micken, you need to listen to them. You know, they're they're your lords now. And, and he says, damned if I will. He bellows, damned if I will. Listen to those people. And then later when he's also being beat in front of everybody by the Ironborn another time. (laughs) Uh, He says that he serves the Starks, not some treasonous squid. (laughs) You know, Micken's got a fucking backbone, unlike the squid. Wait, does a squid? Anyways, someone tell me if a squid has a backbone. I'm so sorry. I think they're they're invertebrates, so you're right. They don't. Good. Good for me. (laughs) Good for you. Uh, But... Now, now that makes me think of how Bran knelt. Rob didn't. But we can talk about that a little more later. First, we're going to talk about Roderick Cassell, another one of the tutors in Rob's life. You know, we see a lot of him, I think especially in the Game of Thrones. Uh, as you all know, big fan of Roderick Cassell. Big fan of one of Kat's BFFs, especially <laughs> in the first book. He He's a big part of it and corrects Rob a lot. We see that especially in earlier and also stresses, you know, that live steal and fighting aren't what make a man, right? He kind of implies he doesn't always say that, right? But like when Joffrey visits, Roderick says like, all right, Rob, well, if you're so good, then you can be Joffrey with a tourney sword, not live steal, because we're not doing live steal yet, okay? Especially not against princes, right? He's like, we're not taking this risk Rob of treason. Uh, and then, of course, when Rob finally does get a live steel sword after his family leaves for King's Landing, it's Roderick who teaches Rob, like, why the fuck are you taking your sword out? We only bear this when we're around enemies. Otherwise, you're a fucking child. Yeah, and as we'll talk about, it's that reiteration of what Ned taught them, for sure. And I do love that, like, you know, we see a lot of the King's Landing appointments, and it's all this lord and that lord, and these are real humans. 
You know what I mean? Like, this isn't just some lord that has a castle. These are mostly real humans. But, you know, in fiction, these are the realest motherfuckers in Winterfell that are teaching them the real stuff. Uh, And I was really surprised. I was thinking about it. And Maester Lewin doesn't play as much of a childhood role for Rob. Mm. But he does actually work a lot for and with Rob uh, when he's a lord and when he's a king. You know, he does side jobs for Rob. He finds the men to appoint around the household that he had planned for Catelyn when Rob steps up to take over her duties. Uh, And he ends up accompanying him around Winterfell for many various things throughout the story when he's still there. And he's also actually the one who convinces Rob, interrupts him mid-moment with Tyrion, and says, Hey, come here, I gotta tell you something. And Rob's like, excuse me. And he like goes for it. He's like, yeah, what up, Lewin? And Lewin's like, you're being an asshole. He doesn't yeah. say it, but he he whispers something to him that makes Rob straighten up and say, Hey, sorry I was being an asshole back there. You know, I'm sure since you helped Bran, you're nice. So, have yeah. on. Uh, even... Bran tells Jojen later in A Clash of Kings that father always listened to Maester Lewin, and Ned can be a little obstinate on who he listens to, but I think that probably is something that Rob knew as well. Later in Rob's campaign, after he leaves and he goes south, Lewin and Roderick actually work as a unit, which I think is beautiful, in that Roderick dictates and Lewin writes and edits and makes it, you know, as classy as it needs to be for the commanders, and... I think Bran's chapters really show a lot of that communication between the parties. So thinking on, I mean, maybe as a child, Rob didn't respect or listen to Maester Lewin as much or deal with him as much. But as a lord, he learns to respect Maester Lewin and what he stands for for Winterfell and what he can teach him, even if it's not just of the old way for the Nord. Yeah, I love Maester Lewin a lot, as we've discussed before. And... I mean, Maester Lewin plays another really big role in Rob's life in that, I mean, he helped deliver Rob. He was there yes. when that boy was born. <laughs> he blessed that king. Indeed. Who would have known that he delivered all these all this royalty? Oh, I wish Maester Lewin knew that. Now I'm sad again. Anyways, another <laughs> re- person to be sad about is, uh, actually, let's be sad about all these, all these people are people to be sad about, but... She doesn't play, like, a huge role in Rob's story, but she's mentioned every now and then. I want to just bring in Old Nan, right? Because Old Nan was the one who told bedtime stories to all of the Stark children. And we can obviously see that, in general, stories play such a large part in the upbringing of any child in terms of what values they learn to internalize, who they learn to idolize. And so I, I just kind of want to bring her into this, too. Because obviously Rob, to some extent, I think, still thinks that he's trying to live up to the his heroes in the songs. And Kat's trying to be like, this is real life. I love that. I'm so glad you brought old Nan into it. I didn't even think about her in relation to Rob. But I mean, we get from Bran all the time, all those stories, right? It's safe to say Rob would remember them probably even more. Oh, sure. And he sometimes tells Bran, like, that's just old Nan's stories, but clearly, I mean, he still, like, internalized them. There's something so great about that in that, like, when you're a child, when you're Bran's age, you get those stories and you're like, that can't be real, can it, big brother? And there's Rob to say, I used to think that was all real, but I haven't seen that. Old Nan's silly. Don't worry about it, Bran, you know? Yeah. Uh, that that, that passage. 
Right. But no, I mean, I'm just like projecting on if I had a sibling. We all know this is a big malfunction for you and I. You're the sibling, I guess, now. (laughs) But no, we are isolated. This is how Rob grows throughout his plot, you know, isolated. And I do, I do really think like there, there must, there is that passage of time and that age of innocence to experience, as we've discussed via William Blake before in other podcasts. Uh, there's something about Rob crossing that threshold, and he was already playing the Lord, playing the man. Rob trying to be the man, as Catalan distinguishes between Rob the boy and Rob the king. Uh, but especially when Ned leaves Winterfell. That is when Rob steps up and starts to change. He starts taking things on for himself. And another way that we really get an idea of Rob and his upbringing is, of course, through his duties as the eldest child. He's the firstborn. And we know that his siblings all think of him very fondly. They all kind of draw strength from him. And then later on, when he's dead, his memory. I especially love, like, He comes up quite a bit in, I mean, all of his siblings' chapters, but I like how in Sansa's chapters, she kind of provides a source of strength in that she she kind of sees him as vengeance, right? Vengeance is a big part of Catelyn's story, but when they talk about the battles between Rob and Tywin, internally, Sansa's like, Rob will beat him. He beat your uncle and your brother, Jamie. He'll beat your father, too. And so I, I... I love those moments. There are a couple parts, especially in A Clash of Kings. Later, she says to Joffrey that her brother Rob always goes where the fighting is thickest. A very subtle, petty dig at Joffrey. A very subtle dig at the 93 letter. There you go. (laughs) And she says, though he's older than your grace, a man grown. And there's even a sadness in A Storm of Swords, which is where Rob, even in A Storm of Swords, learns to kind of, you know, be a man and learns... Kind of that complexity that, like, every time you do something, there's an opposite reaction and nothing is ever good and everything's horrible when you're an adult. You know what I mean? Does that make sense to you? (laughs) Everything being horrible as an adult. Yeah, yeah. And and so Sansa kind of even sees that. She remembers the day that she left Winterfell and Rob had melting snowflakes in his hair when he (laughs) hugged her. (laughs) And Arya had a snowball that was coming apart in her hands and... She thinks, I thought my song was beginning that day, but it was almost done, which really rings true with Rob's song, right? With what Catelyn says to him later about being in a song, being immortalized as a song. Absolutely. And I I love that you pointed out, you know, like that he's seen as a man grown by his siblings. They, They look to him as who to embody. And I think Arya's chapters show that really strongly more than once like in for example in just a Game of Thrones Arya too right when she gets needle she's like I can be strong too I can be as strong as Rob and then later on in A Clash of Kings once a lot of her family's dead and gone someone says to her you are Arya of Winterfell daughter of the north you told me you could be strong you have the wolf blood in you the wolf blood Arya remembered now I'll be as strong as Rob I said I would and I'm like ugh and like she also says similar things as Sansa, right? Like during the time that uh Rob is alive, she thinks of how Rob will beat them. He'll beat them like he did before. They they all just have this utter faith in Rob being able to to bring their family together. And I think that's a pressure that's really on Rob's shoulders. He doesn't know that his family, he doesn't know that Arya's alive. But what can I do? How can I like save my family and the and our legacy and line and everything? 
Yeah, and when you think about the extensions of each of their powers as a Stark child, right? Uh, you have Rob, who's the sword. He is the sword, and Arya has to pick that up. As mm. you've mentioned with Arya and Sansa being sword in the shield before. Yes. Uh, that's that funny. That's the biggest thought for me for Rob, that like he was the sword, and now Arya has to pick that up. Yeah. That's not something Bran can do. Rickon can maybe do it if he wants, though it seems that might not be his destiny. Sansa will not. That's not for Sansa. And, and John, John wants to put the sword away more than anything. And Arya even thinks about him, you know, more consistently of just how how he could save them, how she has the wolf blood within her and that she can be as strong as Rob was with the wolf blood. And yeah. even as we get to a storm of swords, especially as her plot comes so close, right, with finally meeting Rob and Katz, Arya's been traveling for so long just trying to get back to them. And she worries, what if Rob won't pay their price for me in a storm of swords, Arya for? She thinks she wasn't a famous knight. Kings were supposed to put the realm before their sisters, and that is exactly what what Rob's doing. He has to put the realm before them, and that's kind of one of the biggest conflicts in A Storm of Swords and A Clash of Kings for him. Yeah, but like, it's also a question of like, do they coincide, right? I think it's so interesting that she wonders that because Rob doesn't, I mean, he doesn't pay their price initially, but also this is a little different. Now he knows in this moment, it had that come to pass. He would have known that for sure she was alive, and it's kind of a dick move not to pay for your sister when she's right there. <laughs> um, yeah, for real. I didn't. We didn't really pull any of the quotes from John's chapters because there's like a million. There's a million. Pick of them. one. They were, <laughs> were very close, but just know that their relationship was so important that John was like ready to break his vows for Rob, and I think that's really interesting considering that a big part of Rob's storyline is about breaking vows and i think john plays a big role in that and we'll talk about that later but they were tight yeah <laughs> especially it. when it comes to the Ola, the snowflakes mountain you know oh god kill me uh and i will kill you i'll put the dagger right in because i'll talk about bran Fuck. you know bran and rob's stories are so intertwined rob yeah. leaving bran is the saddest bullshit in the world I mean, you can't read that chapter when Rob's like, an adventure choked up. Like, we're going, we'll, we'll adventure and journey together, Bran. <sighs> That's not even the fucking quote, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, and, and he feels Rob's tears. I mean, that's really, God, that's such a moving passage for Rob because that is literally the moment, the moment for Rob when he has to give up his innocence. He has to completely say goodbye to the yeah. blunted wooden swords and to his brother, who he just wants to protect and play with and be with forever. And yeah, there's that talk in Bran 2, A Clash of Kings. Bran talks to himself and he looks up at the stone ceiling and thinks that Rob would tell him not to play the boy. He could almost hear him and their lord father as well. Winter is coming and you are almost a man grown, Bran. You have a duty, showing just how much duty was important to Rob. Yeah, I think what's interesting about Rob, especially if he had been a POV, is that for his younger siblings, he's seen as a mentor figure. And we'll talk more about mentor figures in Rob's story later, but he doesn't know shit. He's 16 and like, is, Barely. doesn't know what he's doing. He's, he's, he's a baby. He's a baby. And like, I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm like, too much was put on this boy. I couldn't have done it at 16. So 
I can't do shit at 29. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just so. saying. Yeah, and, and, you know, we didn't put any Rickon quotes here because we don't have a Rickon POV. And you know what? <laughs> Rickon. Through Shaggy Dog. I'm thinking right Ow. now, I had no plans to do a Rickon, like, Patreon episode, POV episode, but maybe we'll change our minds after the winds of winter, so hit us up after that. Anyway. Let's talk about dads. Let's talk about daddy issues again. Ooh, we love this. <laughs> so, Ned's teachings to the Stark children. Our first introduction to Rob is the same as actually when we first meet Bran and Ned, also John. And it's about this lesson about life and death. It's a lesson on duty, but also about honor. They're big deals in the story. Duty when it comes to, of course, the Night's Watch, right? The the beheading of Garrod. But also duty when it comes to a king and enforcing your laws and showing respect and swinging the sword yourself. And being able to look a man in the eyes if you would take his life. That's like a real big thing for Ned Stark. And, and, and it's a legacy of his that persists. During the beheading, Rob tells Bran, though, that the man died bravely, where John said the man died afraid. And that lesson comes even deeper when Ned gets to say, a man can only be brave when he's afraid. It shows us some of the different perspectives, though, that Rob and John bring into the world from how they were raised and how the family kind of affected them. Yeah. And of course, Arya too has the line in A Game of Thrones. Know the men who follow you, she heard him tell Rob once, and let them know you. Don't ask your men to die for a stranger. But it's kind of hard, right? Like when you're Rob and you're 15 going on 16 going on, you know, 30 as a king. And you don't even know you, right? That's so true. That's so true. And I think, you know, his father was put in a difficult position similar, but at least he was older, right? But he was so unable to cope with that. He was so unable to show that side to anyone out of fear. Yeah, it's hard to, like, figure out that line to tread between vulnerability and authority <laughs> as like mm-hmm. a 16 year old you can't you can't even do it when you're not a king how is he gonna yeah. do it there and he has to like command respect from these people it's fucking hard yeah <sighs> and i think that's really where his relationship with Jon snow had to be so much of a building moment a moment a culture an era uh <laughs> No, I John's think the John moment. and Rob. John is the moment, and Rob is the culture in the era. <laughs> Together, they are two queens <sighs> in the North. And uh, I, I think their relationship and their contrasting opinions, like you said, are so interesting with regard to the North, with regard to the lessons that Ned and Catelyn, whether wittingly or unwittingly, taught them both. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about the Theon stuff later on. But for now, I think... John plays such a big role in Rob's life and would, of course, be a big part of his viewpoint chapters because I think John is kind of how Rob becomes aware to injustice in life. Like, John is how he learns that his parents are not perfect because I think for all intents and purposes, like, except for the part where, you know, John views Garrett as being afraid, right? John mirrors a lot of, I think, Rob's personality, especially, like, in their upbringing. He actually has more of the Stark looks than Rob does, but they get a lot of the same education, the same mentors, etc. Yet, despite all this, despite even having the same dad, John doesn't enjoy all of the same privileges 
that Rob does. Like, John's future is cloudy while Rob's is clear. He's gonna be Lord of Winterfell, and, like, one time when John's like, I'm gonna be Lord of Winterfell, Rob's like, no, you fucking aren't. Like, he throws <laughs> this in John's face, because he's also, like, too young to understand what that means, to, to, to mm-hmm. say, no, you aren't. But as they get older and Rob starts to realize what that means and starts to realize his mother's treatment of John, like, we see that Rob exhibits compassion and perceptiveness in order to like even be able to see this. Like one of his, our first interactions with Rob in the story is him asking John how Catelyn treated him. So we know that he knows and we know that he worries about John. And besides the whole like teenage thing and sexism, like I kind of wonder is John's treatment part of the reasons why Rob doubts Catelyn's judgment, especially when it comes to Theon mm. later on. Yeah, we'll definitely explore this on Theon more, but I think you're right. I think this was a, and not to out myself, but this is coming from like parents who taught me to always root for the underdog and always treat people well, especially well if they need to be treated well. You know, like if you Mm -hmm. see someone suffering, extend your hand. And my parents are Christians and I love them very much, but I've seen them also be very hypocritical in that. And I think Catalan comes from a lot of that as we've discussed that there's a lot of hypocrisy Mm -hmm. in the culture that raised her and you know there's a lot of do as i say not as i do going on and i think for rob it's hard because when you look at parents that teach you to always treat people kindly and always do the right thing but then you see that they have not always done those same exact lessons in their life and trying to differentiate those things while looking at your friends that you've made through life or the the people of your age that have been there through your life and being like, but they're good people. What's wrong with them? Why don't you like them? You know, like, why do you say bad things about them? Why are you cruel to them when that's what you taught me? It's a really conflicting, horrible thing to deal with, uh, whether it's from Ned's lack of action, his ascetic action, or from Catalan's overaction. It's a lot to take in. And I think that for his part, like, that does show maturity on Rob's part to be able to recognize that and be like, this is wrong and like to come to a different conclusion from his parents that's difficult and mm-hmm. it's especially difficult when you know you're, you're living with this conflicting moral code and he's the golden child right like again all of his siblings look up to him he's the perfect child and has been beloved and to see like his brother treated that way and you know, before all the pressure like ends up on his shoulders. So it it's I think a big part of Rob's storyline, his relationship with John. But speaking of moral codes, religion I I mean you, you started bringing this up a little, but religion is a huge part of I mean, I think the story in many ways, but it, it it's an interesting part, especially when it comes to the Stark children. We don't really get to see a lot of Rob's point of view when it comes to religion. However, we see glimpses of Rob when it comes to religion. And I find that fascinating. I know we don't really have, we don't have our own Bibles out there for a swath religion yet. Hopefully in 10 years after the next three books come out, George will get time to work with someone to come out with some, you know, religious texts for a swath. You know, like how uh, back in her day, Mrs. McTurf Turf, J.K. Rowling put out that um put out the the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them mini book and like the Quidditch book that was littler it was like a twenty page or some crappy little dictionary yeah. thing. But hopefully we get that right. Like I want the Ten Commandments from the Seven and like other weird random texts. I love that stuff. I don't think Georgia is interested in that. To be honest, you say that, but other people will. 
Oh yeah. No, I just think there are, I just think there are there are authors who like are interested in religion in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think there No, and me, he doesn't go my, into it for a reason. I mean, yeah. obviously. He doesn't like well, it. I have my that criticisms in how he approaches religion. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, I I agree on that. Who knows? Maybe someday we'll get merchandised hell thanks to capitalism of these. But there's something <laughs> interesting trying. going on there with the Starks that like having Catalan and Ned having Catelyn with her seven and Ned with the old gods, we see that the children, especially from Sansa, right, who practices both and respects both and kind of does the sacraments and different events of both, she's raised and chooses both of them. But it seems that it's a choice, right, that the, that the Stark parents seem to offer it as a very free choice that hmm. you can worship either if you want or one or both or whatever you think is right. And while Rob does give some respects at the Sept as well, we see him, even back in Winterfell and even later as they travel through the Riverlands and the South, he's really a fervent believer in the old gods, or at least presents to be as such. After Ned dies, she Catelyn goes around asking where she might find her son, and she's told that Rob went to visit the godswood, and she thinks it is what Ned would have done. He is his father's son as much as mine, I must remember. He kisses his wife Jane goodbye in Cat 5, A Storm of Swords, in the Godswood. Well, one of the three times he tries to kiss her goodbye. And he plays <laughs> in the Godswood with his siblings as a boy, with the other children. Uh, all, all these sweet memories of innocence in the Godswood, and, and maybe not so much innocence as we get forward in this plot, right? He prays daily in the Godswood for victory, for his father's memory and home. And it's interesting that the only other character besides Sansa who finds refuge in the Godswood right in King's Landing, though it's half a Godswood, she still seems to start finding just refuge in her family's old religion, something that she never embraced as much as she could have. And Bran seems to have picked up the Godswood tradition through Rob. When Rob is choosing lordly things himself, he Bran actually watches him from atop the buildings before his fall and sees him playing with a real sword in the yard and not going to the godswood as much and knowing that that was a thing his brother did. And even later, he thinks to go to the godswood when Rob's there praying about his father and and says, I won't bother Rob, knowing that it's kind of a serious thing. Uh, And now, even in battle and even after battle here in a storm of swords toward the mid-end, Rob makes time for the godswood and looks at it as respite from the world. Uh, He stays with his lords there and always makes time with his lords to pray with them. And I think that builds morale as well. And while I don't think always his tactics are as strong as they could be, that's pretty strong. That's, that's a great point uh, that he very much leaned into this uh, Northern religion. He he doesn't really do the much of the seven at all, even though part of his kingdom, I guess is, is of the seven, but I think it, it makes a lot of sense. They were raised around these gods, woods, etc. And I think, you know, you were talking about it within the context of Bran's storyline. It's also interesting because, and and as we'll touch on a little bit more, like, Rob's story is very much intertwined with the idea of the old gods, right? Especially when it comes to skin changing. That's such a big part of, I think, the, the northern spirituality that has been lost over the years, but that is becoming revived with the Stark children. And as you said, like, like Sansa... They they find peace there to an extent, but I think Rob definitely needs it. And he, I think, maybe leans more into it as well because he's leading 
the North, right? And the majority of the people that he rules follow this religion. So it makes sense for him to also, I think, exhibit that more in the same way that we saw Aegon, the first Aegon the Conqueror, right? He converted to the Faith of the Seven in order to be more like the people that he ruled. So, Especially with the blend of the Riverlands and the North coming together, it is interesting that he doesn't make more of an effort than that. He is very much a Northern king in yeah. this integration. He's a Northern king who looks like a Tully. It's interesting. Yeah, born of the Riverlands. Very yeah. interesting. And I can see why that leads them in that aspect, you know, that his Riverland birth and conception. The time Cat and Ned fucked there. Um, I can <laughs> see why that's important. Absolutely. Well, something else that made a huge difference in Rob's life, even though he wasn't there, was Balin's Rebellion in 289 AC. Because that leads to Theon Greyjoy's entrance to House Stark as Rob's pseudo-brother in, you know, basically very hostile law terms because uh, he's <laughs> Is he a ward? Is he a hostage? Yes. Yes to both. It's interesting to think about their childhoods and where they both come from, right? With Theon coming from his... Uh his island and Rob coming from the North, which is also kind of very isolated, very far from things and sometimes not in the best climate, right? Sometimes it's fucking snowy. Sometimes it's not. It's normal though. When it's snowy, that's what it's like when you're from Northern Michigan, I hear, but it makes me wonder, you know, like how Rob would have felt about this battle uh, about his, I mean, he would have been a kid at this time, right? He would have been very young. He's six when Theon comes to live with them. Theon's almost 10 when he's taken as a hostage for Balin's good behavior. And it makes you wonder if Rob maybe almost looked up to Theon, right? We talked back in the day, who knows when it was, about how Joffrey kind of seemed to look up to Sandor in his little leather jacket, badass brother way. Joffrey looked up to Sandor, and I wonder if Rob also looked up to Theon as a handful of years older and cool, a rebel. I think you're right, though. It's funny to think about, but I think you're absolutely right. Like, with Theon coming in, like, also at a vulnerable time in, you know, Theon's life, because he's just been captured in the middle of war after watching his two older brothers die and his father lose and shit. I I imagine maybe Theon feels, like, also a little vulnerable, but, but shy, and what he does is he tries to cover it up by performing that bravado, which would be, like, impressive to a six-year-old and young Rob is like, wow, amazing, <laughs> amazing, this older kid's lived through war. Like, maybe Theon even, like, makes up some shit, like, yeah, and then I fought people in the Greyjoy Rebellion, and then, like, <laughs> over time, though, you know, Rob wises up to that, right? Like, we see him scold Theon when, I, I do, again, think this is kind of Rob's fault with the, with the brand stuff when they're out hunting, but... There, there's a there's a complex relationship between them, but not quite a rivalry, but, you know, like, obviously Rob gets a little annoyed at Theon and his, like, antics and, and Theon's much more, like, decadent ways. But if we're talking about, like, the differences in their upbringing, again, Rob grew up surrounded by love. Theon was not the firstborn child of his father, and then after being captured, despite, you know, I mean, the show makes it seem like Theon was, like, absolutely cherished by Ned Stark. I don't know if he was or he wasn't, but that doesn't, I think, 
erase what we've discussed during Theon's chapters, that Theon was in a very precarious and vulnerable position where he was like, this man could kill me at any moment. This man who killed my family. And doesn't have that same, like, I think, trust that Rob can in his family. Everything you were saying about Theon and Rob's relationship, because in a way, Theon and John and their edgy emo, you know, they listen to The Cure, they listen to Fugazi, they're vibing, they're like both dark and edgy, one's gother than the other, the other's kind of more hardcore than the other. Uh, you can see where their contrasts, but also their parallels and similarities are what draws Rob to them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Rob, I don't know if Rob knows what punk rock is, I'm going to be real, <laughs> or what emo music oh. is. Rob's a total jock with like a soft spot for his rock and roll brothers, right? He like he's he like, knows, but he doesn't. Oh my god, Rob played lacrosse. Okay, growing oh, up, oh he did absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah, baby boy, absolutely. Rob, baby boy, <laughs> baby boy. <sighs> yeah, yeah, Rob definitely plays lacrosse. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we forge along in Rob's life. What about the king's visit? I think that had to have been such a very monumental moment for Rob's childhood, his boyhood, his manhood, starting that he, uh, I mean, just like Sansa, right? Like, I, I don't yeah. often compare them in this way, but Sansa loves the songs and the stories, and mm. Rob kind of found himself a little enchanted too, it seems. I think that's a great point. Like, he was told this is the world, like, that he's going to have to enter in a way, right? Finally. Uh. Yeah, and then he ends up having to reject it, which is really interesting now that that you point out that he was enchanted by them. And, you know, moments before, they they find the direwolves. It's really fun. It's very fun. And he's like, yeah, mom, I found them later on. And changes everyone's life. But anyway, meeting the king, back to that, like... Again, this is something that I would love to have, like, Rob's perspective on. Maybe, like, not a POV in that exact moment. I I imagine it would be later. But, like, I would have loved to know what he thought because, like, what does Rob think about the man that he was named for? You know, like, I was named for that guy. You know, he seems useless. But he seems funny. Maybe. So what, what what does he think? I get the sense that maybe Rob would react kind of similarly to John, but maybe he wouldn't because, as you said, he was very enchanted, right? He's like, oh, this is what it, the king is. And, you know, I, I do think he would feel a bit of disappointment, but it also makes me wonder, like, how he would feel about Jamie. You know, does he look at Jamie and think that what John thinks of, like, that's what a king should look like, though technically that was foreshadowing from the 93 letter that is, like, left over, that is left over. But it it is interesting because Rob actually ends up defeating Jamie later on. Like, that's a pretty big deal. And early on in the books, Rob does tell Jamie at one point, like, you know, Jamie shouldn't really count as a knight or like a king's guard because he killed the king that he was supposed to protect. So, like, I, I wonder what he would feel looking at him and what their interactions would be like. And it also makes me think, to what extent is Rob's later kingship a reaction to what he saw in Robert Baratheon's rule. Ah, uh, and I mean, how much of that was straight up Ned? That sounds like yeah. Ned. That sounds like he heard his father saying to his mother, oh, yeah. uh, Jamie Lannister, <laughs> he's so golden and shitty. Uh, he's so hot. And- <laughs> and I hate him. 
Well, and that's what's interesting because we don't really see any reaction as far as that goes, as far as the Lannister twins go necessarily. And we later see him obviously have a little prejudice against Tyrion because he thinks Tyrion's probably involved as well in his brother's maiming. But when we meet the actual Lannister heirs, like Joffrey and Marcella, you do see him have a couple of reactions. No reaction to Joffrey, right? His relationship with Joffrey is interesting because we see it through other characters about how Rob and Joffrey fought in the yard and how Joffrey, you know, was all, I don't use fake swords at home. I use real steel because I'm a real big boy. And Rob's all like, I use real steel too. too. Yeah, that's weird. Think about that. Joffrey's taller than Rob. Mm -hmm. That's weird. Weird. So I can see, like, logistically where the 93 letter was coming in, and I can see George going that route in the first book. You can see him building up kind of that rivalry together for Joffrey and Rob. Uh, And, of course, there's also the awkward tension that, like you said, Rob is named for Robert, and Joffrey is not. Obviously, <laughs> Joffrey uh, is not. Joffrey is the farthest thing from a Baratheon that we can hang with right now, and that seems to fit in too of just that rivalry building just from that. And of course, Rob and Marcella. Marcella is something mm. interesting to me that John, while well, he's you know getting drunk for the first time, and he's very bitter towards Rob because yeah, I would be too as a bastard myself being in the back. Rob and Marcella enter during the royal feast at Winterfell. And John is like, wow, you look goofy as a motherfucker. Like, who... Who is looking at him like that? He's out there with Marcella on his arm, looking goofy. Later, Catelyn wonders if Rob ever kissed anyone and how, you know, she doesn't think he did. But from what we know, with Alice Carstark commenting to John that Rob didn't even see her didn't even like look at her like she existed and that this is he was kind of looking goofy it makes me feel like maybe this is rob's first kind of flirtation his first real flirting we know that ned kept them sheltered not a lot of visits alice carstark even says the times i visited rob didn't look at me like that's he doesn't see people they don't see people so that also adds to it like is it because marcella is a beautiful young girl she looks like her mom but she has a warmer personality as we know from the text or even the brush with royalty you know like that that bit of like the royal people are here everything is fancy that touch of the songs maybe a little bit of that is in there yeah i think that's interesting marcel is like very young and i think that's part of why it looks goofy right she looks girlish at him but i think like it's not it, it, it's a mix of She's a pretty young girl in the royalty, but also Rob wants to be seen as a hero, right? Like any Mm -hmm. of the young men and the boys around him, he wants to be seen as a hero from the songs and the way that Marcella looks at him with that admiration, the way that we see a lot of his siblings do, like she get, she kind of bestows that on him a little. He's like, yeah, I'm a strong knight. And he can like tell that. And this little girl's going to fucking believe him. And she's going to be like, wow, so cool. And <laughs> I, I think it's like the first episode like so of Secession. Yeah. It's like when Connor Roy is talking to that six year old in Succession in the first episode, and he's like, I'm going to buy up all the water and have it forever. And when the world goes to shit, you can live with me, little girl. Like, that's how Rob feels. He's like, it's Yeah, I'm strong. Like that. Yeah. I'm strong as shit. I'm so strong. This little girl thinks I'm great. 
Is that the sourdough man? Yeah, it's Connor. That's yeah. Jeff. That's Brendan B. Fish. Oh my god. <laughs> his favorite. It is his favorite. I'm not slandering him. I'm like, there's the guy from Scott Pilgrim. There's sourdough man and <laughs> yep. the main character, maybe, kind of. You're girl. doing great. And Mr. Darcy. <laughs> yeah, and the girl. <laughs> yes, Mr. Darcy. This is a, this is a succession for me. <laughs> Everyone watch Succession. It's our next podcast. Yeah. Wait, what? Good. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. so I think I think something else that comes as a result of the King's Visit is, as as all of you know, it leads to members of House Stark leaving Winterfell. So I'm curious, like, what would Rob have felt like being left behind to rule Winterfell while, like, his father and nearly, like, everyone else in his family gets to go to King's Landing, you know, until Bran falls and he has to stay behind, too. But he's like, wow, what the fuck? Well, and something he mentioned before, it's interesting he turns into using a real sword when the king's party mm, leaves, right? Yeah. Like, he goes from his wooden sword, turns into using a real sword, and will only be seen practicing with that. And I think that was a part of it, that he knew it's time to grow up if I want to get out and seek glory or live up to my dad or whatever. And a lot of that big momentum that Rob takes there kind of slows when it comes to Bran's fall, right? When he's stuck without his father, who's already left, and his mother, who becomes a little weak in the moment and fallible because it's her younger, one of her sons, her second son, and someone that she thought she could keep forever, a child safe. Yeah. Yeah, but... He dies. He's the, only, he's he's the only one who dies. Surprisingly, you know, if you really think about it, he's the only yeah. one who dies. And that is the funny thing, not the funny thing, the horrible thing, the, the ironic thing. Yeah, is that Rob is literally the only Stark that's actually dead, besides yeah, John. Besides parents. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess kind of besides John, but John comes back to life. It's fine. He's like half dead. He's only like mostly yeah. dead, and he's also half Stark. So I'm like, you're only a quarter dead by math standards. <laughs> you know, you're only twenty five percent dead, John. Oh my God, I don't think that's how it works. I think that's math. I would like to see someone challenge me in a court of math. Oh my God, but yeah, I think uh, absolutely with living up to his dad, and then you know. I'll, I'll, Difficult shit happens when his family leaves and he's left here with, like, his mom acting, like, wilding out and then his younger brother not because he's in a coma. Like, you know, how how does Rob deal with the brand's fall? We actually get a little bit of it from Catelyn's perspective and Rob's like, Mom, you gotta pull yourself together and Catelyn's like, absolutely not. And so, <laughs> and now she's like, you gotta pull yourself together. And Rob's like, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. So yeah, I mean, like as you said, he's got live steel, and he's on his own without his dad. He's like, okay, I'm also without my mom now too, I guess, because he's seeing like more than that again. His mother's like fallibility. It's a weird time in in anyone's development where you start realizing, wow, my parents are people. But, you know, Rob is also the one who notices that Bran's getting stronger with the wolves nearby uh, and being able to hear their song. And then, you know, after, again, Bran's recovery, our window into Rob comes through Bran little before Rob eventually heads south. And Rob is lord of Winterfell for a little bit of time. And, and also, when he's lord, 
because of all the responsibility on him, he kind of doesn't really have time for Bran or Rickon once Bran recovers and they're like, wow, big sad. And we we get through that perspective, the transformation starting to happen in Rob as he takes on more of this leadership role because Bran notes that Rob is starting to use his own Lord's voice. Rob kind of forcibly steps himself into that leadership role and copies Ned the best he can for the time being. And I think that's a great thought to connect with like the beginning of his ascendance, right? The beginning of as Rob ascends to become king, to become a lord and to become king, uh, abandoning that childhood. Yeah, he he's really forced out of it. And we have this line from Storm of Swords Cat 4. Only with the Westerlings did she see Rob smile or hear him laugh like the boy he was. To the others, he was always the king in the north, head bowed beneath the weight of the crown even when his brows were bare. So how did we get here? A lot of things. A lot of things happened. Like his dad dying, but we'll get to that in a second. First, let's talk about his sister's letter. It's not really his sister's letter, but it's called that. Yeah, Sansa sends a letter from allegedly. King's Landing, allegedly, quote-unquote, basically saying that girls rule, boys drool, <laughs> men go to Jupiter to get more stupider, girls go to Mars to get more candy bars. That's what the letter- no, I'm just kidding. That's not what the letter the says. That's part of that rhyme. There's like wow. eight different rhymes, I'm gonna be honest. Uh, <laughs> no, Sansa sends her letter from King's Landing, and by Sansa I mean Cersei- you know, works so Sansa can write the letter and Cersei tells her what to say. Rob doesn't really seem to understand politics on this visceral level quite as well yet because he's never had to at this point, right? Mm -hmm. 15 going on 16, where when this letter comes and Rob does show it to Catelyn, she immediately understands this is not Sansa's real word. Rob takes it at face value until she helps him read into it. Though, how could he know? No one taught him, which is gonna be honest a big issue right that here he is and throughout the rest of his story rob doesn't seem to always sniff out treachery right away or in time which does at some point do them in literally yeah that's a great point and he kind of he he feels great frustration right because this is a moment where he's trying to figure out what's happening with his family what sort of course of action can they take and as you said he, he doesn't sniff out the treachery i think he's like you said he doesn't hasn't been trained in it and i think that's a lot of people see that as a fault in the starks parenting because they see it as them not having prepared their children for the world but i'm also like this kid's fucking 16 all all their kids are like really young and when ned went to war when robert went to war they were significantly older i mean not by like too many years but still older than rob is and i think it like I think, to me, to some extent, that's a testament to his parents caring for it, for them, to some extent. Wanting to make sure that they were able to enjoy their childhood and their youth growing up before they had to be exposed to how shitty the world was. And, but, you know, now, now they're getting a crash course in it. And, you know, thankfully for Rob, he's like fucking battle prodigy, just not all the rest of it, right? As you said, he's not great at, like, the politics of things. And, I mean, th this tests all the Stark kids, right? Like, dad dies. He's murdered. So I think this 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 plays, like, a huge part in 
Rob's story because he loses like uh, his dad, but also most importantly, like a father figure and he doesn't get like the John treatment. He doesn't get like eight people vying to be his dad all at once. Cause like early in his life, Rob ceases to have many mentors or parental figures. We talked a lot about the mentors that he had previously, right? Those kind of disappear for him because he, like Sansa, ends up with very few people to guide him. He has Cat, arguably the Blackfish, but little else because, you know, Sansa, she's in an interesting situation. She's surrounded by her family's enemies. She has mentors, but they're not really trustworthy. Like, they don't really care for her, their well-being. They, like, neg her. Like, Cersei's always like, Sansa, you stupid bitch. Um, she doesn't say it like that, but she's kind of implying it. They are not really surrogate parents in the way that Rob has. Or you have, like, Peter Baelish, right? He's super creepy, and he's like, Sansa, I'm gonna teach you, but also I want to fuck you. It's all very weird. But Rob gets to this point in a very different way, despite having had a very similar upbringing to John, because he becomes a lord, and then becomes a king, and Rob is suddenly put into a position where he doesn't really have any mentors in the same way that, like, John ceases to have mentors as much when he's isolated in dance, right? And we were talking about also his storyline compared to Daenerys's, right? There are other factors that isolate Daenerys, like being in a place where she's culturally isolated and surrounded by enemies, too. But, you know, you have, like, John's bastardy knocks him down a few pegs in the social order. He's joined the Night's Watch. And the Night's Watch is naturally sort of this, like, more fraternal and, like, ideally flatter, hierarchically, like, order. He has a lot of mentors because it was also the nature of the Night's Watch. It's structured in such a way that people fucking get mentored and taught and can learn from experienced people so that they can, like, carry things on. You know, besides the part where, I don't know, everyone just thought, like, wow, I really want to adopt that kid. I love that kid. I'm gonna teach him. Whereas for Rob, you know, the mentors that he had at Winterfell in his childhood who do feel comfortable being like, Rob, what the fuck are you doing? He leaves to go to war and he leaves all those people behind. And then the plot, because of plot things, forces Roger Cassell away from him, sends him back north. And despite despite him being, yeah, one of the few people who feels comfortable telling Rob, like, you are being ridiculous. And... Rob feels this need to show strength and decisiveness in order to not seem too partial to any of his bannermen, and so he can't really turn to any of them as mentors, right? They might advise him, but they're not mentors. They can't call him out on anything, and he has his mother, but he refuses to listen to her because he's kind of just like, he's at that age, but also because in order to perform strength or northern leadership, he feels that he can't turn to her because then he would seem weak for hiding behind his mother's skirts, right? Because she's a woman, right? And the same with that Daenerys has to perform strength in a lot of different, like, violent ways and she can't really turn to anyone because also, you know, people are fucking weird around her too. But Rob also can't turn to family, same as Daenerys, right? And, and I think it's implied that... During the time that they spend together in battle or at Rivera, maybe the Brynden Blackfish has taken on some of this mentorship role for Rob. But I think that the difficulty is that he is only one perspective on how to like live a life versus how John is presented with like a bazillion different perspectives from which he can learn and that like help round out his growth. And this is like maybe a hot take. I don't know. I think that like 
the Blackfish might not be like a, the most amazing mentor. I think he's probably like on par with Jamie Lannister as a mentor because like they both have potential and they have clearly very interesting insights on life. But both of these men have spent their lives just shirking responsibility in order to p- pursue like more martial interests and be like, oh, fighting's cool, right? Like, which is fine, but it isn't the kind of leadership guidance that Rob needs because like. Yeah, Brynden served on Liza's guard, but he obviously failed to continue to be there for her. Look at her now. Though, I mean, part of that is also, like, things that happened for Liza and and other circumstances. But we also see that Brynden piles on to his nephew, Edmure, in regards to, like, what Edmure did in the Riverlands, which maybe, like, it makes sense from a military perspective, except for the part where both Rob and Brynden failed to give Edmure clear commands. But I'm like, Edmure's actions from letting people into Riverrun to fighting to protect the Riverlands are because he feels responsible for the people of the Riverlands and not once has Brynden <laughs> Tully ever done his duty to the Riverlands, nor has he led them, nor has he had to protect them. These are difficult decisions that Edmure is making and that Catelyn has been trained to make and that he is not in a position to know how to teach Rob how to do. So we learn from Cat that her uncle was a wonderful source of comfort in her childhood but I don't think confidant necessarily equates to a good mentor for the kinds of challenges that Rob has to has to face. And then, of course, Rob starts surrounding himself with Westerlings. And, like, except for Kat, who is starting to, like, ease up on Rob because she herself is going through grief and trauma. And because she knows that she's done wrong in releasing Jamie. And because then she sees, like, the weight on her poor son. Like, no one's really disagreeing with him to his face to course-correct him because of his station, unlike with John, where every other, like, step, everyone's like, I hate this idea, John. <laughs> there is a lot that Rob doesn't have to experience that John does in that leadership. I didn't really think about it in that way, and I do think that what you said about Brendan also rings true that, I mean, look, if he wanted to lead the Riverlands, he would have done it already, right? Yeah. I think that's obvious. And he didn't. He came back because his niece asked him to and his family needed him and his brother was dying. Uh, But he doesn't want to lead the Riverlands and he doesn't want to be a leader more over that. And I don't think that's the greatest influence of inspiration wise. It's great that he doesn't want to usurp Rob's role or step on any toes in that because that can be a big dramatic thing as we see with Kings. But there is a certain aspect that he's not like a he does he's not a go getter. Brendan's not gonna like <laughs> yeah. do something just for like because he thinks it's the thing to do. He needs a group yeah. of people to decide with, and that's obvious. And like you kind of mentioned, John gets kind of these later mentors in a way, uh, teach him the ropes of war, the ropes of being a man of the Night's Watch, and having nothing. Right? Like what it means to not really be a person. And Rob has the opposite trajectory that he trends upwards. He has to become a king at lightning speed with no one. I mean, none of these people thought they were going to raise a king. Right? They all yeah. thought they were raising the Lord of Winterfell, maybe a warden of the North, as long as things stay fine with the Baratheon Lannister regime. But otherwise, a Lord of the North is all that was aspired to be. So raising a king. He wasn't raised to be a king. He has to be forged into one, which is what he comes to do, just like John, in a manner of speaking. Yeah, and I, I, I do again, like as we discussed at the top of this episode, see a lot of similarities with Daenerys, and that like, who's there who can step to him? You know, like 
when when Robert Baratheon first comes to Winterfell, Catelyn warns Ned. She's like, you knew Robert the man, but do you know Robert the king? And the thing is, like, John not only had mentors, he also had peers. Like, he had Sam to tell him, you're being ridiculous. Like, this man is, like, grooming you to lead. All right? He even, like, Egret felt like she could tell mm-hmm. him, you're being ridiculous. All the other free folk were like, John, your views are wrong, right? But, like, John's, like, romantic partner felt empowered to say that to him. Jane Westerling cannot tell Rob, Rob, I think you're doing something wrong. <laughs> She's like, Cat, mother-in-law, what do I do? How do, do I Do you support? think I have a complex or is this a real thing? <laughs> yeah. So, like, there, I mean, Rob is in the same position as Daenerys' end of A Storm of Swords of do all gods feel so lonely? Who's gonna tell him? Mm-hmm. You know, who, who can he turn to? Something I think that we really miss out on when we get Rob through Catelyn is a lot of the war, a lot of the battle. I think that shapes a lot of the way we see the average Westerosi man in their society of being in battle uh, and, and their effects before and afterwards, how they feel, the people that affect them during. I think that's something that sometimes George presents it really well and sometimes we don't see it. And I think that's also very effective. And for Rob, it is... We see PTSD a lot in Ned's chapters throughout his grief as a version of fighting and war and thinking of the siblings he's lost and the parent he's lost and the family he's lost. Arguably, you know, Robert Baratheon also has it. We see him abuse alcohol and abuse his wife uh, and even his children. Arya as well. For Rob, though, this PTSD would be so fresh, right? Like seeing how he deals with his first kills would be such a visceral way to see a POV from Rob. We certainly see how he deals with kills with Rickard, for example. Rob flung the pole-axe down in disgust and turned wordless to the heart tree. He stood shaking with his hands half-clenched and the rain running down his cheeks. That was the last she saw of her son that day. That's not an easy thing to do, hacking someone's head off, I'd imagine. I've never done it. Jot that down. I don't plan to do it. But... That's so little of what we get on page. So little of the violence we see 16-year-old Rob have to commit is off the page. And it makes you wonder about the battles that we only got just a sprinkling of on the page. Yeah, we mostly see it with Kat being like, wow, my uh, boy went in there and now he came out maybe covered in his blood, maybe covered in someone else's. And I think that would that would obviously take a toll on anyone. Like I imagine that a Rob POV would perhaps reflect upon, or even in the moment, think upon each death and each battle, and how it never really gets any easier. I, I imagine that's something that Rob would think about. Yeah, and we we'll say it till we're dead in the mouth. We're not war analyzers. We're not great at it. But our really good friend Brenda B. Fish over at the Not a Cast podcast is. Also over at Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. And he has a great Rob Stark essay series back from like 2013. And it is where I go when I want to understand, you know, the wars that he's been in as a very mighty veteran of 800 wars. He says during this essay that basically two things that he tells us that, that my understanding is Rob is the greatest tactician in the War of the Five Kings, but he's the worst strategist. What does that mean? Strategy is the employment of battles to gain the end of war. Tactics is the art and science of winning engagements and battles. 
But Rob's not without failures, as we've covered in Kat's chapters, and his communication between him and his leaders is not always detailed. I think that speaks a lot to his inexperience as a commander, and also kind of the high pressure and the highly moving, fast moving parts of this war, like all the betrayal and shit. And as Brendan B. Fish points out, Rob's commanders in the Riverlands and in the North are all older than he is and have all been in more battles than he has. That's a lot to live up to. And as we're going to visit soon, when it comes to his antagonists, all of them have ambitions they think they can execute, haha, slash accomplish beneath Rob. Absolutely. So, definitely take out take a look at that uh, analysis because I think that that has informed a lot of like our thinking of Rob, probably. Certainly mine. Throughout the time when I first came into the fandom, that's a fun fact. Uh, but, Enough of my memory lane. Let's take a memory lane trip through Rob's battle highlights and how they affect his psyche throughout his short reign. Let's start out with the Green Fork. After Ned's arrest, war breaks out. When the Lannisters retaliate in the Riverlands, Rob calls the Banners and marches south to rescue Ned. Tywin commands Adam Marbrand to lure Rob further south, while Catelyn treats with Walder Frey, hoping to gain crossing at the Twins. When the Westermen think the Northmen are a day away, the Robs, commanded by Lord Bolton, march overnight to take the Lannisters by surprise before dawn. Rob faints, splitting his host in half, Heading toward River Run to regroup. Very fun. Really an impressive battle for, you know, his first big one. Obviously, Tywin and others are really trying to lure him several different ways, trying to really break him as a young man. But where Rob lacks politically, he excels, right, in this tactics of war. And some of that is Brynden, as we've mentioned, but... Some of it is also kind of that like raw young instinct that he has. Something interesting here is that the heaviest northern losses besides the Red Wedding, I think are taken here at the Green Fork as the first battle. Roos Bolton faces losing several thousand of his army. A handful of thousands are lost in total from the northern army. And this was probably the first real moment, especially as we go on where, you know, Catalan's treating with Walder Frey because they're desperate. They do not have the numbers. That's when things are really tense at the start, and then they go good for a while, right? You have the Battle of the Camps and the Whispering Wood, where, after defeating House Piper and Vance below the Golden Tooth, Jamie leads Westerman against River Run, capturing Edmure Tully. Titus Blackwood commands the Rivermen, left within River Run. Jamie begins sieging, but Mark Piper and Carol Vance harass him. He's ambushed by Rob's cavalry in the Whispering Wood, and he is captured. A moment, an era, right? This is big. Rob be- capturing Jamie in the Whispering Wood is such like a shock, mm-hmm. right? Like when you get to the end of that chapter and you're like, they have the Kingslayer? What? Yeah. Uh, it's a surprise. And, you know, you have to think Rob must have felt like he was doing his father such justice in this moment and his brother possibly. He must have been so proud. I think about this moment all the time that you know, Ned's disdain for Jamie is so fascinating to read in the minds of different characters, especially when you leave Kat's chapters and you get to Feast where Jamie comes in. It bleeds so easily into his chapters and those memories of the rebellion. And maybe it's Rob's age, right? His young age, his boldness. But Rob's father was not a warrior, as we've discussed. 
he made a a thick figure, a bold figure, but he wasn't a warrior like Rob is. In Catalan Ten, A Game of Thrones, she tells us that going into this battle, Rob was emboldened. If Rob was frightened, he gave no sign of it. Catalan watched her son move among the men, touching one on the shoulder, sharing a jest with another, helping a third to gentle an anxious horse. His armor clinked softly when he moved, only his head was bare. Catalan watched a breeze stir his auburn hair so like her own, and wondered when her son had grown so big. Fifteen, and near as tall as she was. Although we know, Rob is probably shitting himself, because I would be. But while being on full alert, I mean, his body's probably in adrenaline mode. He's probably anxious. He's probably just, you know, the energy coursing through him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great point. He's quite different from Ned. I wonder if he's more like Robert Baratheon, right? Like on the battlefield. Obviously not with like the Warhammer, but he's got his own shit. He's got a wolf. I mean, hell, Brandon, right? There's that moment where Catelyn thinks in Cat 4, Cat 3, A Storm of Swords, she thinks, you know, this, wow, he sounded more like Brandon than his father in that moment as the vengeance Mm kind of takes hold. Yeah, and I guess he doesn't know that, you know, Jamie, you know, injured his dad, but that's, that's, there's a great poetry here to him taking Jamie. It's a pretty big deal in the story. Leads to a lot of things that happen later on. Keeping and defending Ned's honor, right? That's the big one. Well, later on, Sir Brendan Tully leads the vanguard, attacking the Lannister camp at night, causing Lord Brax's force to try to ford the river on rafts. River on pelts the rafts, sinking them. Meanwhile, Rob leads two columns of armored horse, mostly Umbers and Malisters from the west. Grey Wind kills four men and a dozen horses. The Lannisters are taken in the rear by (laughs) Tytos Blackwood in his column. Lord Umber burns their siege towers. Blackwood releases the prisoners, including Edmure, all while Hoster watches from the battlements. In the Lannister camp, their Tyroshi sellsword, who leads Forley Prester's men, strikes his banners and changes sides. Forley then retreats when he sees that the battle is lost. Yeah, the Westermen lost at least 2,000 men or so, including that retreat from Forley Prester's Tyroshi sellsword, leading his men. That switches over. It's a great moment. This battle, really, I mean, at the end of the Whispering Wood, it it feels good, right? Like, they're like, wow, we could really do this. And after the battle, Rob immediately comes back and prays in the God's Wood with those who keep the old gods. Again, hearkening back to when we talked about religion as a respite from war for him. But also, he... He kind of is showing such a, another grand show of leadership of the northern troops so far away from home, fighting for something that's not tangible right now to them. Uh, he finds it easy to relate and to get along with them. And I do have to add, while we talk about this northern side of him so comfortably, there's also something really beautiful and special and very sad about Hoster Tully having watched this battle underneath his walls and how it excited him and how when Cat comes to see him, he says to her, was that your boy? Was that your Rob fighting beneath River Run's walls uh, for a boy that was born here? Whether he remembers it or not, he was conceived and born here. That's so special that he was able to give his grandfather those last moments, you know, that a king fought beneath those walls for River Run. Yeah. And then he looks like a Tully, right? Mm-hmm. Could have been Edmir. You know, if he squinted enough, he wouldn't know. 
I don't know if they look that much alike, right? I don't know. But from yeah, afar, I, I, I mean. <laughs> but I think that's a that's a great point about how he does well in relating and getting along and, and winning this loyalty. Because he definitely needs it for the Battle of Oxcross, which I think is definitely one that would have been very interesting from Rob's POV, because we find about it much later on from everyone else. While Catelyn's visiting Renly's camp, Rob marches west. He invades the Westerlands by avoiding the Golden Tooth through an unknown goat track that maybe was found through his wolf. Let's be fucking real. He's a warg. That's warging. That's literally warging, bro. I'm just saying... Yes. You warged, you mind-melded with Grey Wind, you found that shit via warging. I hear it. I see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I absolutely believe that's what happened here. I think he used Grey Wind a lot when it came to his battles and, and like his tactics in each one, so definitely. And, I mean, he was trying again later on, figuring it out. As for the rest of the Battle of Oxcross, it's, again, a pretty big deal. Stafford Lannister trained recruits from the local village, but doesn't set any sentries. Rob's men cut the lines to Stafford's horses, and Grey Wind is set loose to terrify the horses. The horses trample tents, and many thousands of the West Army dies. Stafford Lannister is then slain by Rickard Karstark. Stavrin Frey dies by wounds after battle, and most others are taken hostage. Afterwards, Rob captures Ashmark and Brooks towards the crag. Mage captures some livestock as resources, <laughs> and Lord Umber captures the gold mines at Nuns Deep, Castamere, and the Pendrick Hills. This is also when Ryman the Rhymer writes Wolf in the Night. Again, this is like peak Northern Independence, right? Like things are going yeah. great right here. You have some livestock. Thanks, Mage. Yeehaw. Uh, and, and Lord Umber capturing those mines. That feels big, and Part of me wonders, maybe it's just a throwaway, it's a gardening thing that George won't come back to, but the other part of me is like, what if that money did make its way back in some aspects? War's expensive. It's expensive. It is expensive. And the livestock. Yeah. Those resources are- Food. Important. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I think we discussed this during the cat chapters, but love the image of Mage rounding up. (laughs) Pacha! Pacha! Yeah. So those are the external battles. Let's talk about the people standing in the way of Rob. Let's talk about some of Rob's antagonists, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there are three very major antagonists, though there are a few lesser that we'll talk about as well. Karstark, Bolton, and Frey all seem to have kind of their own ambitions revealed through this war, nursing their own grievances and disgruntlements against not only Rob, but the Tullys and the Starks. Both Bolton and Karstark stand in the shadow of House Stark, while, of course, Walder Frey stands in the shadow of House Tully, Roose and Lord Rickard fought on the Trident during Robert's Rebellion, even present in King's Landing when the traitors were brought before Robert. Of course, Roose generally recommended death for most people. He's like, yeah, you should die. That one should die too, Robert. It even Barristan Selmy, who Robert brings off his knees and accepts. It's likely Some the fucking Boltons- Lynn Corbray energy. Yeah, very Lin Corbray, just biding his time, ready to fuck people up with his sword. And, you know, it's likely the Karstarks and Boltons, though it's not discussed, it's likely they sent troops or maybe some money to help during Balin's Rebellion. They didn't seem to be directly involved from what we hear from history, but we don't have a lot of details on Balin's Rebellion. Maybe it was kind of like, here's some gold dragons to our liege out of respect, but it was Robert's war, and it doesn't seem like Ned would go out of his way to ask people to come out for that. 
you know, that's a lot. I get that. Something else that feels really prominent is the Karstarks and the Stark connection. While their blood is, yes, very distantly related, it still connects them to that fertile soil of the North. The Boltons, too, were once kings in the North. They were red kings, and there seems to be a sense of entitlement George is building around these two families in these chapters, especially when we see their later vile behaviors, like the Boltons flaying people and putting them on display outside Winterfell, or Roos allowing Ramsay to trash the North, right, like his frat house, and trash the North's quote-unquote daughter. And of course, Karstark's closest kin attempting to, you know, force kidnap Alice into a marriage for those lands. Both of these families are scrabbling like crows at this power vacuum, this feast that's awaiting them, trying to snag what they can in Ned and Rob's absence, as well as killing off Rob, right? They're totally fine with that. Karstark is fine with killing off Rob's legacy, and Bolton is fine with killing Rob just to smite his honor and legacy. And I do think that some of this comes up, and it's interesting because Rob's main antagonists are his father's battles, right? Like, these are battles that Ned kind of would have had to fight had he lived, that Karstark and Bolton may have risen against him in some aspects, because, like in some cases, like in Bolton's case, he thinks he's a better man for the job of the North, that he deserves it in some aspects. And we see how he gets to play that fantasy out as we get into Feast Dance. Yeah, he totally does, and turns out everything's a shit show under him, too, and he's like, I'm surprised. This is a shit show? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, quiet land of quiet people. And he's like, that's what people want, right? And I think the car strikes are really interesting and and bring a lot of things to the forefront of the plot and the story, especially Rickard Karstark, uh, in terms of what they embody for Rob. Because I think the deaths of Karstark's sons are really an important constant reminder in Catelyn's chapters of the cost of war, that people that they know about and care about are going to die for their cause, and also a reminder of the need to not pursue vengeance. But I imagine that through Rob's POV as opposed to Catelyn's, he'd think of the Karstarks more fondly, right? Like, that these boys were his friends and then he's thinking more about his friends dying for his sake because i think with the exception of ned's povs when he's like oh my god my friends are being cut around me when jamie lannister (laughs) has just decided to fight me in the street like and and also to some extent john's right we don't really get the perspective of someone wrestling with having to send and order their close loved ones to fight for them and die for them for john the love his loved ones die but for i think a large part of his story it's side by side as equals he's out there and and not as their leader right and i think to an extent like it 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 comes through uh with the free folk but I think it's a very different dilemma than what Rob is facing. And then Rickard Karstark, of course, is especially interesting in his role as one of Rob's vassals. Like, the Karstarks strongly support the Starks until the Storm of Swords. And they are among the most powerful and maybe outspoken and maybe trusted of the Northern Houses. Part of it may be through that blood connection. But many of the Northern Houses also, they just easily follow Rob's command. The other kingdoms that aren't the North or the Riverlands, I, I mean... They don't really, 
they're like his enemies, right? The Karsarks embody this interesting middle ground as a disgruntled vassal. Like, how does a lord or king appease those who serve him, who have sacrificed for him? And how do you garner respect in these instances when things are, like, they're unfair? And, I mean, Chloe, you pointed out in the cat POVs, like, when Rob does execute Karsark, he does it in his own name. So how do you administer justice to those who break your laws and ensure it is fair, even when it's those who support you and are on your side? And then again, how do you command respect as a boy? And I think that as an, antag an antagonist, the Karstarks really bring a lot out in Rob's story. Yeah, they challenge that completely. And where Rickard is constantly frontally challenging that out of Rob... Bolton is undermining that, right? You have yes. Bolton being such a silent assassin, literally. You don't yes. realize it until it's too late. And we only realize that Boltons are the villains towards the end. Although when you isolate Arya's chapters, when you isolate these plans gone wrong in the background of Kat's chapters, and you see these plans happening, you're like, oh shit, they were bad all the time. But Rob's trying to be just, and he's trying to be fair, and he's trying to do every little bit of kingship right. However, that's kind of an oxymoron, doing kingship right, right? Like, there's no possible way, and that is what Rob is learning, because the Boltons are nursing these past guilty grievances. Bruce has had to hide things from Ned in the past because of moral, good, dead Ned. Him and his hatred of first night. How dare Bruce do that, you know? <laughs> I agree. How dare he? But not just that. The Boltons are set up as, even in Aeswath history, as George has laid out, historically bitter enemies of the Starks. Some of that became a gardening thing later on as George continued. But when you go back on reread now and you have that enriched full view of it, it's obvious that Rob really put too much trust in Roose Bolton. Yeah. I think he thought, like, wow, this is, like, a formidable house and, like, one of our frenemies. Maybe, like, they'll become more friend if I put more trust in them. But no, it turns out they became more enemy. <laughs> Speaking of frenemies, let's talk about some frenemies. Oh, the phrase. Yeah, that's the an phrase. antagonist, right? Oh, absolutely. They are, I think, you know, obviously the Lannisters are antagonists. That's self-explanatory. We're not going <laughs> to have to dwell too much but like the phrase are the first obstacle in rob's way as he needs to make haste to free his lord father who are captured who's captured by the lannisters but like literally when it comes to standing in the way and going against what rob wants walder Frey holds the gate to the south and he takes such a big role because he is positioned as this very like key part in rob's story he's the key to getting to his father and then later on he holds the key to home. No, he does. Uh, the troll toll. You know, you gotta pay the troll yeah. toll. And We're all just billy goats. <laughs> Rob makes a very big vow, right? Like, this is a big choice. Pledging to marry someone and be with someone for the rest of your life, especially that you have no clue who the fuck it is. You're just gonna marry someone after you've killed a bunch of people to win. War sucks. Uh, but Catelyn respects that Rob's like, yes, I will marry the girl. She knows it doesn't come easy. She's done it herself. 
And of course, Rob breaks that, and it's hard for me to talk about Walder, because Rob probably thinks that Walder is an aggravating, weaselly, old, wrinkly man with potent sperm. He is. Like, I want you all at home listening to know he exactly is an aggravating, weaselly old man with potent sperm. However, some of the time, besides the whole murdering people we don't like slash agree with, plotting to exchange them for political power and prowess kind of stuff... Walter was right sometimes, right? Like, he's uncouth, and he birthed a bajillion kids with a bajillion grandkids and some great-grandkids as well, but that doesn't mean he's worthless, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Hoster could have thrown him a bone of respect here or there, and speaking of the Boltons, I mean, there's something in it that, like, dumb Eric, dumb Eric Bolton, you know, that he was the good Bolton, and he's the one that got sent out of the Bolton regime. He's the one that was sent out to the Rills to go hang out and get kind of domestic about it, learn how to be a man out there, you know, do all the good things, write poetry, be a war god, too pure for this world. But he got out and was fostered, and you look at some of the phrase that have been fostered by some of the upper echelons of Westeros, and now, obviously, they haven't gotten really far, far into some of the families, but they've gotten high enough up with some of their esteems and their ambitions that the ones we do meet of higher birth do have personalities, right? Like, George deigns to write them because they have personalities. And, like, imagine if just someone cared about a fray and gave them a better life. And some of it's nature versus nurture, right? That doesn't obviously work. We'll talk about some things that happen, like, with Theon or other characters, but... It's just like, maybe you could give a Frey a chance for 25 cents a day. Hashtag not all Freys. Hashtag a lot of Freys, but not all of them. Yeah. I've, you know, done done some writing on some of the Freys individually. I'm like, yeah, hashtag not all Freys. And I mean, in general, right? The Freys are important in Rob's story, right? Walder especially represents something that Rob doesn't really understand. Uh, I And I mean, many of the other nobles do not understand them either in Rob's defense when it comes to, like, prestige and respect. Like, clearly, beyond just, like, giving them a good life, most of all, they do not respect the phrase. And I think that's what really grinds Walder and I think it ties into some of those other themes that we've discussed in terms of like this sort of new money thing that we're seeing with this like rising merchant class that's starting to happen in the later books in the port cities of Westeros. Though, I mean, Walder Frey's not new money, right? And mm-hmm. I, I, he's just like, for some reason, not seen as honorable. Part of it is a late Lord Frey stuff, but I mean, it, it's really interesting how he's he's a gatekeeper in a literal sense. Yet, he keeps getting gate-kept out of the upper echelons of Westerosi society. It's hard. I feel bad. I feel like, and, and yeah. like, let's be real, like, Walder Frey would be an always trumper. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. that motherfucker showing up. Him. He would wear yeah. a Trump face mask. But, like, still, that doesn't mean that his 8,000 children aren't worth, like, giving a chance you know and i feel like that's a lot of the phrase that they're immediately written off and as we see like Rosalind is actually sweet a sweet girl being put through hell by walder not unlike jane right like not too anti-paralleled to jane's life and what she's being put through with rob whether she knows it at the time or not as a honeypot 
Uh, and I think there's a lot to look into and dig into there between Jane and Rosalind and their roles as we get into Rob's story, too. And of course, obviously, I love Perwin and Oliver. They're great. Yes, I love yes. them. And we are unfortunate defenders of Amory Frey, kind of. I mean, we won't yeah. defend her, but we're there for her. We're, we we thought we defended her, then we read her, and we were like, what do we think about Amory Frey? <laughs> like, do we think differently than we thought? But in many ways, we do like her. Love Fat Walda. She's great. Yeah, love a Fat she's, Walda, always, yeah, always. She's a cinnamon role, and, and so love her. But, you know, let's come back to antagonists, people who are actually against Rob's story and stand in the way of his goals. This one's a, I think I, I'm going to make a hot take here in saying that Catelyn yes. is an antagonist in Rob's storyline. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Huge antagonist. And like, let's be real for a second. You know, we really appreciate Kat's character and complexity, but moms are rough, man. I have a mom, and she's a lot. I love her. I love her to pieces, but moms are hard, dude. They're a lot. Yeah, I would be lying if I said that in my teenage years, my parents were not standing in the way of my happiness. (laughs) (laughs) Michael. It certainly felt that way. (sighs) Yeah. And I think it starts as early as a Game of Thrones, right? Like... Rob is suddenly kind of thrust into this sort of like parentified child role, just briefly, very briefly. It's it's not his entire storyline where he's like, again, mom, pull your shit together. And then later on, right, like when Rob is a lord and king, she kind of stands in the way of Rob trying to like seem like an adult and looking like a king in front of his vassals. I mean, like it's the usual, you know... How do I seem like an adult in front of people with my mom when you're a teenager? But it's magnified here, right? Because, like, I mean, of course, there's the aspect of her being a woman and his mother, and that can seem very emasculating, especially when we see that a lot of the way that northern leadership works is, like, masculinity, performing masculinity and strength and bravado. And, of course, there's the other part of Catelyn's from a southern house. But most of all, I think... Catelyn ends up kind of jeopardizing a lot of their plans by freeing Jamie Lannister. <laughs> Which, I mean, again, we stand by the idea that Rob Same. could have exchanged Jamie from the beginning for the girls, and that probably would have been very beneficial for multiple reasons. But in general, like, everything about Catelyn's presence kind of threatens to undermine his authority, and, like, freeing Jamie Lannister, like, it actually literally, like, and outwardly does undermine his authority. Like, that's that's literally treason. And <laughs> it makes it very difficult for Rob to model justice within his kingdom, see the Rickard Carster problem above, when he fails to punish her and, and really show that, yeah, we like have fucking rules in this society. How is he going to show that when his mom does shit like this? It, it's such a complex place to sit between, because again, same. I would free the the guy too just to get my kids back but also it's absolutely difficult for him to kind of like propagate what he wants his kingdom to look like when a he doesn't actually know what he can want it to look like first of all like how could you dream a kingdom when you're constantly at war and then that when you're being undermined and i think there's that like really complicated feeling of your parents have to let you go someday right 
Cat mm-hmm. has to let Rob go in order for him to grow as a human being. I mean, that happens with people in general that your mentor figure has to at some point throw you out of the nest and hope you can fly. But how could you when you're losing everything else? Right? Like, yeah. how could Cat let him go when that's all she has left? That's the family she has. And yeah. that conflict is so emotional. It, it's, it is tragic. It's one of the great tragedies of Aeswaf. You know, her yelling, Rob, no! It's awful. Oh, God, it's going to be horrible. We have to do that, like, soon. Yeah. Jesus. Anyway, it's horrible, but her presence is directly undermining his authority. And you think of other kings and their mothers, right? Like, Magor and Visenya, for example. Had Catelyn lived through the Red Wedding, would she not have holed herself up with Rob's dead, broken body and found a red priest or priestess to bring him back? Mm Mm-hmm. That's a great question. She probably would if she didn't know it existed. So Melisandre yeah. of the Tower, get over here. But it's her I mean, instead. It's her instead. Yeah, she's doing it in a way like with his legacy. We'll talk about that later on. But I mean, in general, like everything she has done kind of makes him achieving his goals and what he wants in the story more difficult. Also because like she keeps telling him, you can't do that, Rob. And he's like, fucking watch me, mom. And then he does it, then he goes, fucks his his own life up and (laughs) causes more conflict. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the internal and external conflicts that that faced Rob besides the battles, because we've kind of already discussed that. That's like an obvious conflict. Uh, As we said, the Lannisters are a big one. It's, again, pretty self-explanatory. I, I will say it's fascinating and I think very impressive on Rob's part that Tyrion points out to Sansa that Tywin's biggest enemy for a good long while is in fact Rob. He's like, Vex, like, how is this fucking child like ruining my life? Rob is the main villain for Tywin Lannister. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Lannisters, I, again, really wish I knew what Rob and Jamie's interactions were like, though. Like, did Jamie goad him, saying, like, he killed one king and he's down to kill another? And what else did they discuss? I don't know. It's interesting because when Jamie talks about it, he says, you know, he tried to get to Rob. And as yeah. he got close, they took him. So it almost makes me wonder if, like, there was no interaction, one of those very close, fleeting moments. However, I do want you to know that I wrote you a fanfic. All of you. This is not just for Eliana. And, like, I'm thinking it's going to be something... Or Scad, yeah. I'm thinking it's going to be something like, The boy king in the north caught a golden lion in his teeth. Finally, spits on the ground. And then, like, Take the kingslayer and shackle him far from here. I don't want to hear his treason. I'm disgusted with him. Spit on the ground. And, and that's what I think their meeting was like. What do you think? I think that's probably what it was at the beginning, but I think it would make sense for him to try to question. Maybe he sends someone else, though, to question Jamie. but if we had a Rob POV, I think that it would have made sense for Rob to meet Jamie in the way that Catelyn ends up doing so. I mean, I guess he doesn't because we get like a lot of really great moments in that cat and Jamie. I mean, maybe they would have had sexual tension too, though. Who knows? Jamie and Rob? What the fuck? Yeah, dude, that's again what Scad wrote. That's true. That's true. <sighs> it's that kind of podcast. Well, it always is this, that kind of podcast. <laughs> another another difficult conflict within Rob's storyline is 
and this would be ongoing, it's proving himself as a lord and then a king despite his Asian experience. Like, he has to live up to his dad's example without Ned being there because he's dead. <laughs> without and, knowing course, his dad's example in full. <laughs> right, right. Like, because, like, Ned hid so much from them. And, you know, again, this is why I think it would be interesting if he had met with Jamie, like, for Rob, he has all of these different responsibilities and duties, and and it's this kind of idea of so many vows, they make you swear and swear, and obviously Rob does a terrible job with those vows. That is honestly one of the, the strongest things, is that line in Kat's chapter has so much more to do with Rob's entire reign, right? That moment when Rob finally breaks down and says, I was gonna do it all so right. I was gonna do it all right. I was gonna be the right king, the best king. And now look where I am. I'm losing everything. That's yeah. so emotional because that's what they all set out with. And then they start compromising. And as we know, Rob had to compromise and compromise and compromise with his reign. He compromised from the start. He compromised his family. He compromises Winterfell. Yeah, I don't know if he compromised enough, right? Like he compromised on the wrong things. At the wrong time. Wrong yeah. yeah. The wrong people. <sighs> Damn. And yeah. You know, someone who I don't know, I personally don't know if I'd put her as an antagonist, but I think that she should come up as some of the conflict for Rob, and that's mm -hmm. Jane Westerling, our gorgeous little baby honeypot. And I, she's like in this really complex area, right? Because she, she is with him, kind of romantically, and she herself is for Rob, but her family kind of stands, and, and their marriage stands in the way of his desires of... Winning the war! Winning back the north! <laughs> it's really interesting because it's like, they stand in the way of the northern independence claims and everything northern independence means, but I'd even argue they don't stand in the way of his desires and that's the bigger mm. problem for Rob in a way, that like Jane and her family is this random family out of nowhere that is this reprieve from war for Rob, that Jane is a kind young woman. He could take her home to his cold marble walls, if they weren't burned down, or to the crag and make babies with her for half a century. But it's his honor and duty to his people in the North, maybe not necessarily his family, but to the people of the North that actually stops him and, and him wanting to finish what the Lannisters began with, you know, the whole murdering his daddy thing. There's a lot of conflicting things that are happening in Rob, and he's like, how do I how do I hold all these feels? How do I achieve all these things? It, and it's very difficult, and I think what's really interesting about Jane and her storyline with Rob is it, it's taking that trope, right, of, oh, the wounded soldier and the nurse who nurses him back to health, and they start a romance, only, like, there's all this other really difficult shit in the middle of this war. And as opposed to being an antagonist, I would say perhaps we can think of Jane as a contagonist. Uh, Dramatica has the system for storytelling and, and they have this idea of a contagonist because as you said, she doesn't really quite stand in the way of his desires, but her family, I, th I think they do impede like some of those, the other goals of winning the war and taking back the North and independence. But she does it more through like temptation as opposed to like actively like opposing. She proposes like this like different way that his life could go. And the definition of a contagonist from Dramatica, which is actually like a term that like I don't know they made up. They say it's a concept unique to Dramatica. The contagonist is the character that balances the guardian. If protagonist and antagonist can archetypically be thought of as good versus evil, 
though that that's not always what they mean. The contagonist is temptation to the guardian's conscience because the contagonist has a negative effect upon the protagonist's quest. It is often mistakenly thought to be the antagonist. In truth, the contagonist only serves to hinder the protagonist in his quest, throwing obstacles in front of him as an excuse to lure him away from the road he must take in order to achieve success. The antagonist is a completely different character, diametrically opposed to the protagonist's successful achievement of the goal. That's it. I like that. The contagonist. Okay. It's a hmm. useful term that they made up. Yeah. And it's a great way to explore both of those sides, right? Of a character that both challenges mm -hmm. and limits your protagonist in what they're doing. And I think that's a big part of Jane is that she blinds Rob to a lot of things because she is that, well... She's that sweet escape, right? Every song in Aeswath, she was his secret lover. She was his secret shame, right? Uh, I, I, that song is, for Hands of Gold, I mean, is actually similar contextually to Jane for him. She was the escape that Rob needed in the time, but she was also the escape at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I'm also just like, I'm never really sure if he loved her or not. <laughs> You know, like he, I don't think he was sure either. He fucked. <laughs> yeah, he's like. I mean, she's hot. He only knew her for what three fucking months, like in yeah. total. Uh, and I don't mean that meanly. Maybe they did love yeah. each other, and they were there. They found love. They in found love place. in a hopeless place. Yes, yes. But that's the thing is like, I mean, he he did care for her, as we've talked about. He very much so cared about her honor. He he says, you know, for the love of me, Jane may lose all to his mother and Catelyn too in A Storm of Swords. He says they wed without her father's consent. And in later in Catelyn to A Storm of Swords, he, he says, you know, the big reasoning, I took her castle, she took my heart. And he explains how he takes an arrow in the arm that festered. It seemed like nothing at first, but then it festered and it was infected and he probably thought he was going to fucking die because you know how it is when you have a fever or the flu. You feel like you're going to die. And Jane took him to bed. And then, of course, she was with him when the great John later brought news of Winterfell, of Bran and Rickon. And he tells her that Jane comforted him, which we all know what that means and Catelyn most of all. I think about how her castle was taken and, you know, how she was taken her by castle Rob. castle was taken. Yeah. Come into my castle, but non come into my castle sexually speaking. It reminds me of Asha Greyjoy actually a little bit holding the Glovers in their castle, and how most of the hostage situations we've seen or heard of in A Song of Ice and Fire are usually violent and nothing like this one. But Asha Greyjoy and the remainder of the Iron Man host holding the Glovers in their castle. I mean, not all of them were gentlemen, right? And probably not all the Northmen at the Crag were gentlemen, like Rob. Men at war are men at war. We see the bloodlust rise. But it does seem that, like the Ironborn in the Glover's presence, they were welcome enough. And at the Crag, I mean, Rob welcomed them into the King's Justice, like, after a couple days, right? There was no hardcore sacking of the Crag. We could see Mama Glover again, maybe someday in regards to Asha, or maybe, as shitty as it is, maybe the Glover family's death will happen and Asha will have to fucking reckon with that, you know? Uh, and, and that's kind of, I mean, not too far off of what Rob has to reckon with here, that he 
was taken into their castle, took these people into his presence, and then he was just screwed over. <sighs> A child yeah. at war, you know? That's such an interesting point that Asha's perspective might show a little bit of what was going on in Rob's POV, especially because not only is she a Greyjoy, in some ways they're 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 antagonists in story in, in Rob's storyline, but also she's kind of vying for royalty in a way too. Yeah. So, and she's obviously in a precarious position, right? Like she is running as a third party in this election. Yes, <laughs> she actually is. She really is, and. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting. But obviously, I mean, we find out much later on that there is more going on there. And, you know, we, we were talking about, does Rob love Jane? I don't know. I, I think he loves her to me, so I don't know about romantically or not, right? Based on how we hear their relationship goes. But also shit's hard when you're a teenager and in war and your family's dying. And are you becoming one with your pet dog? I don't know. But I, I do also feel bad for Jane because I, I'm just saying, like, as she and Rob were losing their virginity to one another, Rob is just basically thinking about all of his brothers at that time. Like, he confesses to Kat, like, oh, I slept with Jane out of grief for Rickon and Bran. And of course, like, his chosen brother Theon is part of those thoughts too, because, you know, he's the one who murdered them, allegedly. And so Rob in that moment kind of, he, it's that other trope, right? Like, when you find out someone dies, like, beyond the, like, nursing trope, of he wants to feel both nothing and also anything other than this guilt and grief in that moment. And so as he says, he takes comfort in Jane. Then right after, I think they have sex, and right after he, like... You know, I, I don't know if he, like, came in her or not, but I, I'm sure he's, like, thinking then, not just of those brothers. He's like, oh my god, my other brother, John. Like, he's just thinking about his brothers while having sex this whole time. And I, I don't mean this in a weird way, but it's, like, I don't think it's coincidental that Jane and John's names are so similar, right? Like, I mean, the corollary to John Doe, which is, like, what Jon Snow's name plays on, is Jane Doe. And I think this is one of those moments where I desperately, again, wish that we had a Rob POV. And apparently, turns out George seems to think this would be a great time for Rob POV too, based on those quotes earlier. Because I think this is so important to his ideas of like the human heart in conflict with itself, because Rob is racked with torment and guilt. He's thinking of his family and the potential shame he's brought on this girl because of, again, like he's thinking of like what his brother went through, what his father went through, and, like, all of those things. I, I That's a huge driving factor. And I also wonder, like, did the Westerling family also approach Rob? Did they guilt him into marrying Jane, saying, like, oh, her honor is sullied now? And I think that's entirely possible, now that we, like, learned that Sybil had some hand in orchestrating all of this. But again, ultimately, Rob is thinking of John, like, and his father, and I think for a moment he sees, like, this chance to be better than his father's failings because of his love for John and his desire to protect Jane. Like, those are those two loves are what cost him the war. It's two different kinds of honor, right? Uh, in terms of the honor of someone else, the honor of protecting someone and not having a bastard versus the honor of, on, of uh, keeping a vow. 
these are the two things that are in conflict within him. Uh, so, again, so many vows. And I imagine if we had POV chapters for Rob, like the chapter with, would end like very dramatically with an ambiguous, but you know, that very telling ending that shows us like Rob finally coming to his decision of like, I know what I must do like to marry Jane. But it, it would be like with mysterious wording, but it would be obvious which way it goes, especially as the story develops. Yeah. And, you know, something about a secret marriage, not to Rhaegar and Lyanna it, who knows, mm. but something about a secret marriage is kind of romantic and sweet in the Aeswath terms, even though they die. Well, he dies, but, you know, Jane will probably die someday. Yeah. We all die in the end. We all die. Uh, I I think there's so much of John wrapped up in that and so much of his other brothers wrapped up in that. So much of his father. And... Also of just, like, wanting to set it up right. Wanting to start right as a king. Wanting to do it right. Wanting to correct the sins of his father. And wanting to be better to his new wife or to a wife than what he thinks he's seen. It's sad and it's sweet. It's so bittersweet because he just wanted to do it all right from the start for once, you know. And a lot of those big thoughts of John... That happened during that. I'm sure after the matter, the fact he probably thought about his big bad brother, Theon Greyjoy, right? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, like you said, for John, like, John's like, uh, he decides I'm never going to have sex and have kids. And Rob's <laughs> yeah. like, I'm going to marry the first woman I fuck. That's how they both react to that trauma. Whereas, as you said, big brother Theon, Theon's like, I'm going to have lots of sex with lots of people all the time. And ignore and, all until, of the consequences. <laughs> right. Uh. Until I guess he can't anymore. But anyway, so. Yeah. Uh, we, we didn't discuss Theon in Rob's antagonist, but I personally think, like, the more that I think about Theon Greyjoy and, and the role that he comes to play in Rob's storyline, I, I see him as the primary conflict slash antagonist like, the main one for Rob's storyline, because, like, you think it's gonna be the Lannisters, but as the story develops, I think it's Theon's actions that stand in the way of Rob's victories, and, and they deal the biggest blows emotionally, but also, like, politically in terms of everything, and it's the one that Rob fixates on the most. Like, after a while, he doesn't think, like, what did the Lannisters do? He's like, what happened to Theon, right? Because, like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, he betrays them utterly, and also Theon is to Rob. In some ways, I think as Robert Baratheon was to Ned, in some ways Theon is his Liza. He's also, like, to Rob Jamie confessing to Tyrion the truth about Tysha. He, he's the one who, like, changes and grows and turns out to not be who they thought he was going to be. But also he's the ward, right? Like, Theon is maybe Rob's Peter Baelish in a way, too. The, the drama of the ward, again, resurfacing in Tully families. I don't know specifically about Theon as, like, Robert to Ned, necessarily, mm -hmm. but I like the idea of it, and I like the cut of the jib of, like, I see the flow of your ocean as it moves, and the little <laughs> finger, sea. your sea, yes, your sunset sea, your little finger comparison lately has been, like, the most spot on for me. We know I am a known little finger anti, a known little finger hater, will never defend, do not interact, little finger but I think that that parallel has been so strong, although obviously different circumstances as far as where they come from and how they were warded slash hostaged and also not, right? Like that pile of rocks that they have to their name, no real loving parent to go home to. 
I think Theana's little finger or, you know, Jamie to Tyrion kind of style shows also in the devotion that he exercises towards Rob. Theon is someone we do get point of views with throughout A Clash mm-hmm. of Kings and later on. And he has this endless posturing, right? Uh, he's, he thinks constantly, constantly of Rob or what Rob would do as he goes off on his own, thinking that Rob will win until he's broken to his father's will later on and tries to hold the North. And even on his way home for the first time, he thinks of John and Rob and thinks that John was sullen, quick to sense a slight, jealous of Theon and Rob's regard for Theon. And for Rob himself, Theon had a certain affection, as as a younger brother even, but he knows that it's not good to mention that to his father. And that's where his conflict begins with his father, but that's something that always sits between Theon and Rob. I think Theon, you know, giving that control over to Rob, over him, uh, saying that to Rob and saying, you're like a little brother to me, would probably change the relationship a little bit. And John and Theon's contrast for Rob, a lot of Rob's choice in John as his heir, not only due to the treatment of John from Cat and Ned, but also I think comes from contrast to Theon, right? Theon's the other brother that he had that did betray him. And Rob probably thinks there's no way John could do what Theon did to him. There's this line from Theon, even, even when Theon knows that, you know, he holds the north and Rob is down, down in the south trying to fight his way north. Theon is promising his men and he says, Rob will never look on Winterfell again. He will break himself on Moat Kaelin as every southern army has done for 10,000 years. We hold the north now, sir. But he says that and still thinks pretty much in the same chapter. Rob was the only Stark that ever acted brotherly to him. Even while he's actively betraying him, Theon knows how wrong it is. It's a deep, deep hurtful cut because I think, as we've discussed in other Catelyn chapters, Rob thinks that Theon feels maybe more familial, right, to towards the Starks than turns out Theon does. And as you said, in the contrast between John and Theon for Rob, like, I mean, John was ready to betray his vows and his family to go help Rob, and he didn't know if he would be accepted back or not, right? It's it's a fascinating contrast with Theon's storyline, where he's he's gunning for love from his family, and I think John is too, but for his Stark family. And, I mean, ultimately, the, the way that it really ends, right, it, it's like, Rob has this guilt of, like, I can't believe I let him go, and then he's the reason why, like, my other two brothers are dead. Like, I think that weighs on him heavily. And then, as we've discussed, like, does he want to confront Theon? Does he want to kill him? Like, it's it's a deep, deep hurt. And all I can think of is, you were my brother, Theon. I loved you. <laughs> you were the <laughs> chosen <laughs> brother. You were the chosen. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's literally it. That's like, that's it's Rob true. and Theon storyline basically. Yeah. And obviously we've talked about Theon at full in our Theon POV, but going home to his dad for Theon, it really did fuck him up, right? Even, even when he's home for the first time or on his way home, he's using Rob as his kind of security blanket, right? Like 
You know, everyone hates me, but Rob trusts me. Rob gave me these secrets, these papers. Even later in Theon 6, when he is at Winterfell, knowing that everything is just going to fucking collapse on him soon. Theon stared at the flames over the rim of his wine goblet, brooding on the injustice of it all. I rode beside Rob Stark in the Whispering Wood, he muttered. He had been frightened that night, but not like this. It was one thing to go into battle surrounded by friends, and another to perish alone and despised. Mercy, he thought miserably. And that sums it up right there, right? Part of him wants the glory for himself. Part of him wants just somebody to give a shit about him. But also part of him knows that Rob is his brother. Yeah, it's it's so painful. It's so painful. And it makes me think a little bit of like, you know, there are questions that people have of when Blood Raven says to slash uh, the three-eyed crow says to Brea <laughs> of... The brother I love, the brother I chose. A brother I loved, yeah, a brother I hated. And there are people who say I they think that the brother he loved was Damon Blackfire, and yet he fought against him. And so mm. I, I think that's so... It's yeah. so it's so painful. Like the things the what transpires between the two of them, I think it is the deepest cut in Rob's storyline and it completely fucks him going forward. It completely like ruins any other moves that he would be able to make mm-hmm. and also pushes him into some of the circumstances and choices he has to make uh in Catlin 5 in terms of the will. So, yes. Speaking of those choices when it comes to the will, let's talk about uh let's talk briefly about Rob's sisters and the decision of like are they worth the price of giving up the Kingslayer? Yes. That's my answer, and I have no description for it. I'm just gonna say yes, moving on. <laughs> yeah, I agree, yes. Obviously he debates on it, but I, I mean and I think this would be a conflict in a storyline, but the answer is yes. <laughs> I also think and this might be a really silly, broad thing to say about the story, but I think that that's kind well, we of... we are broads. Yeah, we are broads. We're dumb broads, truly. But this is, <laughs> this is like, the broads theme of the story. Uh, right? Like, you have Eamon telling John, is it worth it? I gave up my whole family. I came here. I did my duty. Yeah. But you'll never know... You know, what your brother having a son and holding it in your arms? Like, all yeah. the things, like... Rob, as we're going to talk about as he disconnects from himself and from his wolf, like Rob disconnecting from his family, he can't be a king and also be Rob the boy. You can't be Rob the king and Rob the boy. You can't be Rob with snowflakes melting in your hair in the yard and battlements of Winterfell, looking at your siblings, loving them, throwing snowballs at them. (laughs) Breathing in the scent of the godswood and the fresh snow laying on the ground and the crunch of the leaves beneath your feet as you run with Theon and John, that's not King Rob. That's Rob the boy. And as John has to learn too, kill the boy, right? Kill the boy, let the man be born, and let the king be born for Rob. That's what Rob learns. And it's it's not fair, but King Rob and Rob Stark are two different people now. Yeah. Um, I was are, attacked. Are you in pain? I'm now. sorry. I'm sorry. I was attacked just now. First of all, <laughs> and I, I think that's that's a fantastic description of comparing their storylines. And as you said, choosing family over the other. I I do think it would have been smarter for Rob to choose family. I, I think that was a failure in his strategy. But when it comes to 
I, I love that you pointed out that this comes through Eamon's advice to John, because I, I think what's so interesting about Rob's POV is we can kind of glean what might have come up in it based on how other themes manifest in other POVs, but Eamon regrets it. Right? Like, Eamon, Eamon acts like, yeah, I made my decision and I have to live with it. But as we near the end of his life, he's like, I can finally help my family. I can go to her. I can go to Daenerys, but I'm too old. And then that he, like, dreams in the end of his younger brother, Egg, and, like, we realize, does Eamon think he made the wrong choice? Oh. And does Rob? Yeah. Would Rob, could he think? Maybe he can think of the afterlife. <laughs> well, <laughs> second life. But actually not second life because his wolf dies too. Fuck you! Let's talk about Great Wings. Damn! Is that <laughs> vengeance? <laughs> you just got vengeance and justice and fire and blood on my ass. Okay. Vengeance uh, for Eliana. So just to put the nail in the coffin here of pain for Eliana... Not only does Rob shut his family out here, but he shuts his wolf out. He shuts the other part of himself out, Grey Wind. Uh, As soon as we get to a storm of swords, when Rob returns home, Rob stops taking his wolf out in public as much as the first half of the book. And it seems pointed. Catelyn 5 is the first time we have him back in a public space with Grey Wind, and we see hints of Rob disconnecting from his wolf side. In Catelyn 2, he says... I am not a wolf, no matter what they call me. Greywind killed a man at the crag, another at Ashmark, six or seven at Oxcross. If you had seen... This is interesting, especially like we were saying with Daenerys' arc as she moves along in the story. And Hmm. Rob starts to reject his wolf, not unlike how Arya also rejects her wolf physically in the start when she has to kind of make Nymeria go away and throw rocks at her. And then later... When she lies in the House of Black and White, saying that she's no longer a Stark, she's no longer Arya of Winterfell, she's no one. Compared, of course, to Bran, who embraces his wolf more, right? That's all he has left in Winterfell throughout A Clash of Kings when all of his family is gone. Uh, He wants to be Summer instead of being a human, the quite opposite of Rob, the exact opposite. He's like, I just want to delve in my wolf forever and never talk to people. Or Rob's like, give me my sword. Rob knows hurting his family, not trading Sansa and Arya for Jaime, is part of him being king. It's being a wolf, being a Stark, being connected to a dire wolf bloodline and his family is not easy to do as a king. Their shame, the Stark pride, scorn, and honor at the things he does and the things he has to put aside in doing them, he can't be connected to that. He can't think about that because that will tear him apart inside right like those emotions will literally stop him in his tracks from fulfilling his duty to the north for northern independence and the riverlands too who have faced oppression from the lannister regime and for him his wolf side is also what the lannisters use against him not just for himself but when joffrey has sansa beat and stripped publicly it's because of his actions in war and his wolf People call him the young wolf. They say he casts and curses spells on their men and tears through their armies with his jaws of power from his wolf. The Westermen slander him the most in this way, claiming he let Greywind eat Stafford's heart after tearing it out. There's something there that really reminds me of A Dance with Dragons and Varamyr's prologue chapter. 
Could Rob be maybe worried about becoming an abomination? In Veramir's chapter, Men may eat the flesh of beasts and beasts the flesh of men, but the man who eats the flesh of man is an abomination. Abomination, that had always been Hagen's favorite word. Abomination, abomination, abomination. To eat of human meat was abomination. To mate as a wolf with wolf was abomination. And to seize the body of another man was the worst abomination of all. Hagen was weak, afraid of his own power. He died weeping and alone when I ripped his second life from him. Veramir devoured his heart himself. He taught me much and more, and the last thing I learned from him was the taste of human flesh. This is so interesting, especially as you were talking about comparing it with Daenerys' storyline as she starts locking up her dragons more, this idea of being afraid of his own power. And, and I think that is part of the conflict within Rob, especially when it comes to his wolf. I don't know about the abomination part, though, because, I mean, Rob didn't have anyone really to tell him about those taboos when it came to skin changing. And I'm going to be real, like, if no one taught me that any of these were abominations, like, and it's a thing that's only really, I think, taught within the free folk cultures north of the wall, which is quite far away, I'd be like, this is fucking cool as shit. I'm amazing. Like, I, I would not think I was an abomination. I'd be like, I'm fucking incredible. This is very cool of me. I will say... Tinfoil, you talked about her earlier, old Nan. Mm -hmm. She has those kind of stories. Rob might have oh, known about could. them. Rob might have known that that's an abomination. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. Maybe. But like, yeah, I guess Bran wasn't taught them, but he was also younger. He had less time to learn stories. <laughs> in, in regards to, you you brought this up earlier. I, I agree. I strongly, strongly believe that um, Rob was a warg, was a skin changer. I think he was conscious of it. I think that he was second in his ability to work with his direwolf, with Bran like maybe being the first and John the third. But I think that Rob was able to do it very, I think, consciously in a way that he didn't always rely on it for escapism in the same way that Bran did. Like he knew when to pull back and kind of had this like symbiosis to an extent. And I think we get hints of that with again finding the goat pass, and as the story progresses. Things become harder for Rob, maybe especially post marrying Jane. And I think that as things get more difficult for him, that's when he starts spending more time in his wolf. Same as how like life's di clearly difficult for Bran right now. He is mm -hmm. on the run, assumed dead. Uh, a lot of other people in his family are dead, and so that's part of like, you know, and and he's had mobility taken from him, so he starts spending more and more time escaping. But like Rob we're told just stares into space a lot and cat notes that rob probably isn't eating or sleeping and i think a lot of these mirror behaviors we see in bran and that jojen warns him against being like bran you need to eat because your wolf eating is not the same as you eating and i do kind of wonder to what extent like when it comes to rejecting his wolf beyond like the abomination part and wanting to fearing his own power like you know, distrusting his wolf and Starkside has to do with one of those first instances where he realizes he's mistaken, or that Grey Wind is mistaken, all the way, all the way back in A Game of Thrones when Tyrion visits Winterfell. Grey Wind is hostile to Tyrion, but then Tyrion, like, presents a gift for Bran, and it's actually, like, a very nice gift, and Rob is like, oh, huh, it's really weird that Grey Wind would do that, though this also might have been an artifact from the 93 letter when Tyrion ends up burning Winterfell. But also, as Rob points out, like, 
in A Storm of Swords, he's like, well, I started distrusting the wolves because, like, if the wolves didn't keep Brynn and Rickon alive and safe, then, like, what fucking value is Grey Wind in keeping me alive? So I think it's really fascinating. It's a fascinating line on his part because, to an extent, it's also him distrusting himself. He's like, wow, if I had that judgment when it came to Theon, like, you know, and Grey Wind being a part of himself. And it also, I think, speaks to his feelings in regards to the betrayal of the systems and beliefs that he's had, and that they don't match up. They haven't lived up to what he was taught. And I think that's what every teenager kind of goes through, but, like, it's way more intense and turned up to 11 because so much of his family dies and not all of us go through that. It's what George is into, but also it speaks to, yeah, again, family betraying you and Theon not keeping them alive. And it is like the basic structure of how much can you rip away and break a person to show their true character, which I think is part of Rob, that like, he loses and loses while he wins and wins, and we have to watch his pain, and watch that transpire on page. And I do think that intense amount of teenagehood just being like put through the ringer, now you have a wolf as well, as we're seeing for these Stark children that still have wolves left, it's... It's a lot. It's a very emotional thing. Like, you thought pimples were bad, which I still have as an adult. Get ready, teenagers. They are but still bad. They're awful. They're still bad. They never get better. But wolves and the pain of, like, feeling that connection with the wolves and being able to dissociate into your wolf instead of deal with real life as Bran, Rob, and even Sansa and Arya have to deal with at an earlier age in some aspects. And I love what you said about how can you keep losing and losing yet winning and winning. It's like, I I love that. I mean, that is absolutely Rob's storyline. It's a contradiction. And he wonders that, too, as A Storm of Swords progresses. And in the, like, last two chapters of Catelyn, you can see he's like, I can win one more battle and get myself out of this mess. Just like Davos, right? He's very sure he can do it. Yeah. Just like that Davos the Gambler. Yeah, he, he's been gambling a lot, and he doesn't realize that he's been taking all of these risky gambles, and he's like, one more time, if I just win one more battle, then I can I can fix it. Yeah, it's uh, the beginning, he had that raw, dumb beginner's luck, but now the beginner's luck has run out, and it turns out all of his men and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Rob back together again. That's so sad. They really couldn't, and they, they, uh... they tear him apart, and they're like, let's put his wolf... For fun. Set on his body. Yeah. It's fucked up shit. Well, that's depressing. And now that we're through his conflicts and his antagonists, we're getting to the end of Rob's POV chapter, right? And you and I did a little talking before this. It was really fun. It took us 10 minutes, actually. But we (laughs) took some time to put together what we would do if we were structuring Rob's point of view. And honestly, there are so many ways to take it. And I do think that George had kind of some some hints that he would put it in heavily for the beginning of the story and maybe pull back a little bit. But because of the way of the flow of the events, we honestly had a really heavy emphasis in the beginning and then the end. So to start out with the Game of Thrones, some of these are pretty straightforward. Like we think that maybe a Game of Thrones drop one, right, would be right after everyone leaves for King's Landing and he's all alone and he's like, Mom, why? A Game of Thrones drop two, Ned's capture of course, and having to leave from Winterfell, a Game of Thrones Rob 3, Ned dying, and then now having to plan more for war, and then also wolf dreams, and then a Game of Thrones Rob 4, battles in the south, and then, of course, being crowned king in the north. Yes, and we'd cruise on into A Clash of Kings, where Rob, I just don't think his role would be very 
loud in this. Rob would have some battles in the West in A Clash of Kings, Rob won. His connection with his wolf through warging would also be featured again heavily. We'd want to build that mm-hmm. up. In A Clash of Kings, Rob two, it would be taking the crag, Rickon and Brand's deaths, Theon's betrayal, and of course later taking Jane's crag. Maybe they were all interspersed in the middle, you know, mm. again. A whole uh, a climax of plot, you could say. Yeah, right after, he, in the post-nut clarity, he's like, what the fuck am I doing? Post-nut clarity, get that's the fuck a, away from that me. Is, that's a term, that is a term. Get away I did not come from up me. With. Is that what they're chasing? Is that it? <gasps> post-nut clarity. Let's talk a storm of swords, Eliana. Let's talk a storm of swords. So I think that you, we, we, we already discussed storm of swords, Rob 1, would maybe talk about the deaths of the hostages that Rickard Carcer killed and then tie that into like through flashbacks Jamie's release. Yes, like how George does the whole middle of the chapter, but that mm-hmm. was before and here's now kind of thing. Yeah, they're all related. These these moments are related to one another. We have a vision. <laughs> so it's Rob 2 would be like after Hosser's death, maybe finding out about Sansa's marriage and then more disconnecting from his wolf, knowing that his family is being punished. And then, of course, also getting more of a view of the Westerling court and how he's replacing his family with them. That would take us to Rob 3 in A Storm of Swords, where he has marital troubles with Jane. Rob avoiding Jane, but also maybe being annoyed at his men when he tries to seek refuge with them instead. Rob 4 disconnecting from Catelyn, from his mother, planning the trip to the Freys and Edmure's wedding, on the road, maybe some more very ominous wolf dreams. And that would bring us to our final 11th point of view chapter for Rob, which would be Rob 5, one last chapter at the Twins, looking at the maps, having wolf dreams, finding out about Balin Greyjoy's death. And we thought it was kind of important that there was no Rob Red Wedding point of view. It would have to end before the Red Wedding. Yeah. I mean, this is this is kind of where Catelyn's chapters end. We get, like, a bit of hope. I don't know that this would replace it or not, but, like, I mean, the Red Wedding from Catelyn's point of view, it's, it's too iconic. We cannot... You can't mess with perfection. Yeah. And I'd love to hear other ideas. This was, you know, this was, like we said, a shorter put-together POV list, but... I could think about this for hours, so if you have thoughts to send in on what your Rob Stark POV chapters would look like and how you think the story would be distributed from his point of view, please send them to us over at Patreon or even at our email, girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, at gmail.com. Yeah. But before that happens, before we end the episode, we do want to talk about what life is like once Rob's life has ended. Let's talk about his legacy and the North remembers. Yeah, with Rob dying so young and being such a a heroic song, right, from the books, he uh, he leaves a legacy that, as we talked about at the start, all the Stark children think about him constantly and think about living up to him or think about how he would defend them were he there. And afterwards, after his death and after he is gone from this earth mortally, they're not the only ones that think of him, right? We have Wyla Manderly. They killed Lord Eddard and Lady Catelyn and King Rob. He was our king. He was brave and good, and the phrase murdered him. If Lord Stannis will avenge him, we should join Lord Stannis. Obviously, 
I mean, very obviously, Rob and Catalan, I mean, their legacy and the war and the independence faction that they led here has stuck around in the story for even Wyla Manderly, who, look, I wasn't great into politics when I was her age, but she knows and understands through her maester and through her kin that this is wrong. Yeah. She just wasn't taught how to participate in it yet and be like, shh, Wyla, we are politicking right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, you're not wrong. Which, I mean, as at her age, I also was not... It was raw, Eliana. Of... It was raw. I was not part of national politics in on the same level as she was at her age, so... <laughs> Gotta hand it to her. Yeah. And we also get uh, people talking about it, you know, not just things starting to form in White Harbor, but also all the way back at his home in Winterfell, right? We have from Lady Dustin, even Dustin's out of Barrowton. Lady Dustin parted her lips in a thin, feral smile. The North remembers Frey. What a line from her. Like, uh, that feral smile. Like, even Dustin, who's like, fuck, fuck a Stark. Fuck a Stark. She's sitting there and she just has this thin smile just... The North remembers, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not just the, the Stark stands, is all I'm saying. Not just them. Lady Dustin, an auntie, a Stark auntie, is out there being like, I mean, sure, Lord Bolton, but what if a Stark came back? What would you do about it? For fun. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. Unless. Haha. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the death of Rob has obviously le- left a power vacuum. And mm-hmm. they're trying to be like, Maybe we can prop him another Stark here. And obviously part of his legacy will be that will that he has set out. And mm-hmm. I, I think, though, in general, like, he, he sparked something in terms of Northern independence. So like you said, it's not just the stands, even the antis. Like, they're like, but what if we had our own power, too? And I think that's going to continue to persist in the North. Another Northern independence moment after Rob's death that I love is, although the show, you know, memified it, <clears throat> but... <laughs> Liana Mormont's letter to Stannis that Bear Island knows no king but king in the north whose name is Stark. That feels very strong uh, as we get to the end of the currently published books. Ow, it hurts every time I say that. Every time I say those words. The currently published story in 2021 that even by A Dance with Dragons... This is how much North remembers propaganda we're seeing, and that the people want their next Northern King. They want their next Northern King. They want someone that justice they remember and recognize. They want justice, and I think, you know, I, part of why the legacy is so strong and persists. A lot of it is built on Ned's legacy, not necessarily Rob's. But I think for Rob, they saw like a boy. They saw someone who fought for them. Like he didn't give up. He tried. He tried his hardest. And obviously he made a lot of missteps on the way, but that's why his siblings find so much strength in him, because they see someone who tried his fucking damnedest and was cruelly, unfairly killed, and they want justice for him. He showed them that there was a different path. I mean, let's be real, Rob represented the injustice they were already feeling, right? His fate and Catalan's fate further fueled that fire. Not unlike the parallel with the Martells, right? Who are also experiencing that same vengeance of their wrongfully murdered house members. And you kind of see that in tandem with the Starks in obviously a different area, different time, different context. But 
Robin Catalan dying like did not obviously improve the way the North was feeling about the other regions of the country. And we yeah. really didn't talk a lot tonight about Rob's will, for example, which I know we're going to get into in the Catalan chapters as we finish out Catalan's POV. Uh, but there's hope. You know, Rob's will really seemed to proclaim hope. Jon Snow might not be Catalan's first choice for the North, but Jon, as we've talked about, is very much so a part of caring about his duty, which while Catalan might not respect that or know that or think that, especially now in her zombified state, uh, he, he actually cares more about family and duty and honor than she could have expected, right? Jon Snow could help carry on that legacy, and I know that Sansa, Arya, and Bran also are going to do their best to live up to their big brother's name and his word, just like they constantly, as you mentioned a few times, think about him. I think that's what's important about Rob's legacy, is that hope that the North has now to go on, and that hope that, I mean, precious Ned's little girl, you know, Ned's precious little girl, protecting Ned's family, what they stood for, and what they wanted to propagate, what they wanted to hand down to the North, and maybe building a better North. I think that's a big thing. Northern independence and Riverland independence feels so important. I know the bad show only gave us the Northern independence and the Riverlands stayed with the South. Maybe that's fine because maybe the Riverlands actually, you know, participates in that trade a lot more and has customs closer to the South. But I don't know. After this close reread of these chapters, it makes me wonder how the Riverlands could ever join. Right? Like, after seeing how closely Rob and different people fought with them and for them, how could the Riverlands rejoin the South? It would have to be some really big mastermind work from our Fisher King. He was martyred. He was martyred without, uh, I don't know if the phrase knew that was going to happen, but he was martyred. Tywin obviously didn't intend on that happening. But I, I think it's interesting when you were talking about likening his fate to what happened to Elia, and mm -hmm. also maybe, maybe also to Oberyn, because. Mm -hmm. I think there's another darker side, not just the justice part of people pursuing justice for his death. I mean, the North Remembers is also very much a statement of vengeance, and I think they're going to pursue it. It seems clear that Lord Manderley is pursuing that, right, with the phrase. And mm. his very crown becomes a symbol of vengeance because it's what Lady Stoneheart is carting around, Right. And and obviously her storyline is not so much about justice, it's about vengeance. And Catalin's storyline is absolutely part of the legacy of Rob. And there's even that part of like, it's not all going to be hunky dory, John, Arya, Sansa, Bran get together, Winterfell and hang out. Arya has to learn the difference between vengeance still, right? As we've kind of chatted on very lightly, we haven't quite gotten to Arya's POV yet. We'll see where in the future she falls, but uh, Rob's will and testament isn't going to make her suddenly wake up one day and go, I'm going to go home and see my siblings. Uh, something's got to spur her to go there, and she's going to have to understand the difference between justice, vengeance, and home, right? And... Mm -hmm. Listen, as a wise woman once said in Game of Thrones Season 7, chopping people's heads off is fun, but we can't just operate a kingdom on that. That was Sansa Stark. But <laughs> it was something like that. Okay, I didn't really watch it. Okay. 
But just like the different things they're going to learn from Rob, right? Like Bran will have learned to have to grow up whether he wants it or not and to kind of emulate what Rob the boy slash Rob the Lord taught him and the last lessons his father taught him as well. And Arya will have to learn those differences, like I said, of justice and vengeance and survivalism. And Sansa will have to learn uh, a lesson Rob had to learn of who to trust, right? And how to smell out a liar and smell out someone who's trying to bring down your entire regime and your family. And I think another person who's going to have to wrestle with uh, Rob's legacy and memory, considering he played a pretty big role he played a pretty big role in his downfall is Theon, right? Yeah. Besides vengeance and justice, where does mercy come into it? Where does forgiveness come into it? I think uh, obviously his interactions with Bran will be part of that, but also how do you, does he deserve to forgive himself? And how do you forgive yourself for what you did to your brother? Yeah. The only mm. man who loved you like one. <sighs> Rob Stark. Young wolf, Rob Stark. <laughs> I think... I think we did it. I think that's as much POV as we can put out on Rob Stark at this time, everyone. Thank you for listening. I'm very sad. I'm not ready to part from Rob and Kat with you all. It's been a very fun journey. Yeah. Honestly, and I think we say this every POV, but covering Kat's chapters has been really great in this way just to bring light to to Rob even, to some of his emotions as a young boy who has to live up to be this boy king. It's a lot, and he meets it with grace he meets uh, his fate with just utter sheer sadness and, I don't know, he takes on so much responsibility whether he needed to or not. He tries to be accountable yeah. for a whole entire nation's thoughts and opinions and actions and it's a lot. It's hard to contain all that into a, a boy. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, I'm, I'm just glad we got to do this because I was looking through some previous... Things to research Rob, and uh, turns out I've been longing for a Rob Stark POV for, like, what, at least seven years. At least. At least. I, ever since I was like, it's an interesting idea, and, and knowing that George was like, it's an interesting idea, I'm like, yeah. And yeah, overall. I, I, I just, like, honestly, yeah, I, after talking about this, I think anyone else can see it. There's, like, really, really w strong ways that Rob's POV could have contributed to a lot of the themes in this story between family duty honor and winter coming and you know how do you kind of juxtapose your family all these different personalities and all these different thoughts of what's mm -hmm. right and how do you do what's not only right to your family but what's also right to you and what also is representative yeah. of the people you're trying to help and rob's battle with that is so unfair <laughs> it's so unfair yeah. for a boy so young a man so young and it uh with no one no one absolutely absolutely it's a lot to listen to and think about and just like tear apart and realize that he was never gonna survive like the more i read it over and over again the more i realize this was never meant to be and it's awful it's terrible it's the worst book series and i would like george r, r. martin to wrestle me i'm just kidding i will not wrestle george r, r. martin <laughs> Please don't wrestle George. Like I, I just like I don't know. If, I don't know if he would win, and I I I have hope. Wait, do you think I could beat him? The sixth book. Oh yeah, I think you could. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you. Well, I think that's a wrap. That's Rob Stark. That's Rob Stark's POV. The young wolf. The young boyo. 
And uh, thanks for joining us. We will let you know soon what next month's special Patreon episode is going to be. Something spooky for October. And we look forward slash detest slash do not want to approach the end of Robin Cat in the Catalan POV chapters with ya. Yeah, I reviewed them for this episode. I was like, what the fuck? This is painful. Painful. This this episode is painful, but I'm glad again. It's something that I've really wanted to dissect and talk about for a while, so. Thanks for joining, you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.